Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. It's great to be back with you this week, and I've got some awesome conversations to share with you this morning. First up is Sarah Henderson, writer and member of Manawahini Kōrero, and we'll be taking a look at the Midwifery Council's new scope of practice and the language deployed to create this document. The disconnect between the council and key stakeholders. I then catch up with our favourite auntie, auntie hey hey, Karina Shields, and what has been going on with her during the summer and while I've been away. I'll also be checking in with Kylie Ann Kearney. She is the coordinator for the Love Grace Handbag Appeal, and we'll hear all about that later on in the show. Of course, Marty will be along with Media Matters, and we'll look at the media stories that caught our eye and zoom out a little bit at some of the bigger themes behind them. And then I'll also catch up with Natalie Cutler-Welsh to see what she's got going on on her show, Up Your Brave from 10. Oinky stands in front of the mirror in the farmhouse bathroom. He splashed water on his face and snout, buffed and polished his hairless head to a gleaming shine and stared hard at his reflection. I know it's broke, but we can fix it. Yes, we can. He sighed and took a deep breath. And I know we're broke, but we can fix it. Yes, we can. Today was the day that Oinky was to deliver his State of the Farm address to all the animals on Kiwi Farm. Speculation had been rife amongst the sheep all week on how things would go. Most of them were hangry and trying not to let their discontentment show. The rationing had already seen many lose weight, as well as patients, and those sheep trucked off to the works weren't being replaced. 
So with the sheep paddocks looking a little thin, so were the fleeces and tensions were running high. Tensions were also running high at the annual Unicorn Festival. The days celebrating those animals who prefer fantasy land to Kiwi land usually is a harmless enough event full of rainbows and glitters, air kisses and hairspray for both pits and heads. This event was the highlight on the calendar for many of the supporters of the free-range pigs and Napoleon's followers alike. Traditionally, Unicorn Fest was a day that all the animals came together for a bit of colourful fun and all those from the farmhouse were welcomed, regardless of what flock, sty or herd you heralded from. So off Wekniki Lux and Nikki Sal trotted with their colourful garb, resplendent smiles and open hearts to share in the celebrations. But alas, it appears all good manners and deportment usually displayed at the festival were absent this day, replaced by screeching and squawking, bellowing and bellyaching by the unusually angry crowd. After just a short time, Winky had to be whisked away by the farm tractor. No unicorns or rainbows for him this year. So with this memory still fresh in his mind, here Winky stood in front of the mirror, stony-faced. I know it's broke, but we can fix it. Yes, we can. I know we're broke, but we can fix it. Yes, we can. How was he going to deliver this terrible news and still be uplifting? Winky girded his pork loins and purposely strode out of the farmhouse to the steps to make his address. His biggest, boldest smile and all his team placed close by to clack hooves, trotters and claws excitedly at what he had to say. I know it's broke, but we can fix it. Yes, we can. I know we're broke, but we can fix it. Yes, we can. The sheep were bored and still hungry. No organic grain cups or vegan sausage rolls. Not even lactose-free goat's milk. The catering under Winky's administration was sadly lacking. Winky plowed on. We must tighten our girths. Squealer's spending his meat feed supplies will need to be rationed and projects with excessive feed distribution stopped. And all those receiving feed without contributing back to the farm will be encouraged back into work. Our farm is fragile. I know we're broke, but we can fix it. Yes, we can. As the speech concluded, Winky returned to the farmhouse with Nicky Sow. Well, I think that went well, Nicky. Winky retired to his bed that night, feeling he'd done a good job. So as the sun dawned the next morning, the sheep busied themselves to the matter of reporting of the speech the day before. And all that was heard was, Winky says farmers fragile as animals go hungry. Join me next week to see how Oinky and all the other animals are faring on Kiwi Farm, exclusively here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. 
Good morning and welcome. You are with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I'm Marie and joining me now for a story that uh, all of us here on Reality Check Radio are really getting our teeth into because it has been one of the things that broke very, very quietly just prior to Christmas and has sort of slipped under the radar for many people. And here at Reality Check, we are certainly not going to let that happen. Uh, And that is the the new guidelines of the Midwifery Council that were very, very quietly released at the end of November. And joining me now is Sarah Henderson, writer and member of Manawahini Kōrero. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? Good morning, Marie. I'm I'm well, thank you. And and thank you very much for having me. Yeah. We, um, as I said to you, this this dropped, and you wrote an incredible article in Plain Sight, December 8, called Mandated Cultural Humility for New Zealand Midwives. I read it when it dropped. I said to my producer, and she said the same thing to me. It's like, we need to talk to Sarah. And then, of course, I spoke to our wonderful Dailandi um, just when I got home uh, just over a week ago, and she briefly uh, mentioned this. Yeah. And I thought, right, the timing is perfect. We need to get our teeth into this. We really do need to have a look. And your article, for anybody who has heard about this, wants to know a little bit more, your article is a really good leaping off point because you go through the timeline, you have all the information there. So for those who are wanting to get started on this, just let us know, what did our dear Midwifery Council do at the end of November that has sparked all of this off for us right i had been waiting for the midwifery council to notify us of their next move ever since november 2022 when they put an article they did an article in stuff an interview in stuff talking about how they were going to remove the words for women and baby and breastfeeding and childbirth and so on and one of and the reasons that they stated in that article at the time uh, that they, they they didn't really seem to make sense, and it was a lot to do with uh, cultural imperatives. This was the way forward. This was going to uh, usher in a new standard of healthcare, uh, f- specifically for Māori by Māori. This was the the rationale that they were putting forward to do this. Um, and I had I got involved. I had just joined Manawahine Kōrero as a member at the time and to, together we, we wrote a, a group letter to the council um, and it was, you know, we, we spent a couple of weeks writing that letter together, really looking at all of the language and looking up translations and looking up meanings and really thinking about what it was that they were suggesting because it's such a, an important topic. And this was during a submission period, so they were calling for submissions, correct? That's correct, yes. They they released the proposal again uh, in updated form for a second round of feedback. The first one was in March 22, um, and that feedback they, they actually, <laughs> that feedback came back with an 80% of thereabouts negative response, and they had actually included their own feedback in that feedback round. So... They wrote about themselves how wonder what a wonderful job they were doing, and then the second time, rather belatedly, it occurred to them that perhaps they shouldn't do that, um, and so they took out their own feedback, and the negative responses shot up to ninety ninety point eight percent opposed. So when at Christmas time or just before Christmas, um, I'd noticed 
on the Women's Rights Party Twitter page because they never responded to our letter and they didn't put the feedback up from the second round. I've been watching because I was so disturbed by what I had seen. And so I'd, I'd noticed and I looked for, I'd seen the, the tweet on the Women's Rights Party page that they had made their decision. So I went to the website and I, I went to find it and buried in their pre-Christmas chief executive's newsletter, e-newsletter, was a couple of paragraphs letting letting people know, anyone who was going to open this newsletter, um, that they had taken a unanimous decision. So they'd voted, the entire council voted unanimously to adopt the new scope of practice and that it would come in, that they, they had a few extra steps, which they didn't specify what those were, and then that they were hoping to get it ratified and, and enacted, enforced by the 1st of July. So, um, you know, the first, the, I, the, I basically didn't do anything else because this was very concerning to me. The, the language itself of the scope, other, other people, including Suzanne Levy and, and Deb Hayes, um, have talked about the difficulty of regulating the scope and actually, actually making it a practical working document for any midwife because the language is so vague that it's impossible to tell who the patient actually is, you know, who the client actually is, um, who they're looking after, what the expectations are for for who they who and how they're going to look after those people. Um, even the health outcomes are very vague. You know, well being is actually a broad term, and they're responsible now for the the health and or the the cultural safety and well being of the entire Fano, which is a, an extraordinary job description to be responsible for the wealth, well-being and, and cultural safety of an entire whānau, and it certainly doesn't describe a midwife's job, um, in my opinion. No, that, that is literally saying how long is a piece of string. Indeed. Yeah. You know. So again, uh, and, and my, my interest in this, Deb Hayes and I have been speaking a, a lot. Um, she reached out to me, um, the midwife, who started the petition, she reached out to me not long after the article and we've spoken quite a lot since. And we were talking the other day about stakeholders and stakeholders are the people that the Midwifery Council claim to have contacted and asked for their feedback. So that includes the the College of Midwives, the the, um, Maternity Services uh, Consumer Council, uh, nursing associations, anyone with an interest, uh, an official interest in childbirth, Ministry of Health, Te Whatu Ora, all of these organisations. But it also includes the public. We're a stakeholder too in our own care. Um, and obviously, ultimately, the Ministry of Health, which is responsible for the Midwifery Council, are answerable to us. You know, we're not answerable to them and we're certainly not answerable to the Midwifery Council about what constitutes appropriate care for ourselves. And my own background, uh, as a, in, in, aside from being a woman and a mother um, who hopes to be a grandmother one day and wants, wants my grandchildren to be properly delivered um, and, the, and their mother to be looked after appropriately, I'm also a former newborn hearing screener, so I've worked on maternity wards. I was I got involved in hearing screening because my interest is in language. My background is in languages. I, I 
I've spent many years studying various languages. I think I'm up to six. I don't speak them fluently because um, I don't practice, but they come back, you know. Mm. Um, and linguistics is important too. And so when you're looking at the language of this document, what really jumps out straight away is that the syntax is wrong. The, uh, the, the definitions of words are stretched beyond all common sense. The, the meaning is subtly changed in such a way that there's a there's a hidden meaning, if you like, underneath all of this language. And that's where people really, I would like for people to understand that it's not as simple as a midwifery council run amok with, with some ideas. They actually have a, an agenda. It, there's an agenda at play here um, that isn't, that has nothing to do with the well-being of women. No, so this is what got my spidey sense up when I read your article, it, yeah. particularly in the space that I've played in, right, which has been in critical social justice. So I've been in these murky waters since 2018. Yes. I read your article and I looked at some of the language that was used. When COVID happened in early 2020, I said to somebody, you just watch. This is the Trojan horse Yes. that the ideologues have been looking for. Yes. And the timing of this fits perfectly in exactly what has happened. And what I'm talking about is just what you've alluded to, is the language, because that is what those who work in the space of critical social justice do, is they appropriate the language and they manipulate it yes. in order, and they, they dilute it Yes. in order to create a new ideological direction. And let's sort of pull into sort of some of that because some of the examples for that and some of the key players that actually led that manipulation of language because it isn't a midwife, it isn't a medical professional, it is a bona fide educational gender queer and adverted commas academic that was very much at the heart of this. Yes, a number of them. Before we go on, um, just to, I, I have a hypothesis, which um, anybody who spends any length of time talking to me will will eventually hear. These are this language. And it's, um, I, I, I think this is important because there's a, there's a lot of conversation happening around at the moment about you know, people, um, people talk about the, the woke mind virus or this, this way of thinking, um, which is, which is a symptom, I believe, but the language itself, the, the woke speak, if you will, for want of a better word, is in, is, is in fact the vector for this mind virus. If, mm. if, for want of a better description, it's cultish in its nature, cultish in its nature. And what we all do is um, every single human being who speaks a language speaks a linguistic code, one at least one. And the, most of us speak more than one because we have to. To and Linguistic codes can be adjusted. Uh, the way that I'm speaking now might not necessarily be the same way that I would speak if I was going to a dinner party or if I was going to the, the mother and baby child group, for example, or if I was switching outside my own social class, my own social group, then I might switch codes to let people know that I can interact with groups from any any area. 
And we all do this. And this is, uh, there are statistically measurable and observable codes in New Zealand and everywhere else that, uh, that belong to various communities. And this is what we want in any, any language arena. We want there to be lots of codes. We want there to be code switches who can carry the ideas and concepts and words from one group to another. This is the normal process of language enrichment. But occasionally you get a corrupt code a code that interferes with normal cognitive function, the, where the words mean the opposite to what they actually say, where the syntax is changed, where the rules about what you are allowed to say are ever more prescribed and ever more narrow. And if we think about the way that neurons connect in the brain, and especially related to language, and the left-right brain hemispheres, this kind of approach to language and speaking this code has a very powerful effect on the brain. And it seems to interfere with people's ability to determine, or it seems to create some kind of cognitive dissonance, whereby the only way to resolve this dissonance is either to adopt the ideology out in, in, in totality or to reject it outright. And the people who try to sit on the fence they seem to go, they, they get, in, in my observation, they don't seem well. They become very unhappy. They become very confused. They, they become very, very disconnected. Very, very disconnected. They really struggle to communicate. And this is, this is happening around the world. And every time this code enters a new language, no border is, is going to keep it out. No mask. No language can set, can be protected from it. And it, it, once it's entered a new language, it changes. It responds like all languages do because they're alive in, in the, you know, on their, in their own selves to the language that they're in. So Wokies is different in New Zealand to how it is in Australia, to how it is in America. Similar in the same way that our ordinary language is, but different again with our own cultural expressions. So mm. when we're looking at the Midwifery Council and we're thinking about this linguistic code, they're writing in this. They have all been brainwashed into speaking this way. Um, and they've been at it for years. They've been at it for four years in this very tight-knit, self-referential, self-aggrandizing movement where they're just telling each other that they're doing a great job. And when you watch the videos of them speaking, it, it's quite shocking. It's it, you can see the impact that four years of brainwashing has had on them. They they speak in very strange ways. Their body language is extraordinary. They they rant about uh, discoveries and journeys. Uh, journeys. journeys. And, yes, that's right. Journeys. Just ju so many journeys. Uh, the word journey has been used abused in their documents. You know, metaphorical journeys. These are metaphorical journeys of looking within and being indoctrinated. They're mm -hmm. describing their experience of being indoctrinated into a cult. Um, so that's, you know, that's where we're, we're at with this code. And the language underneath uh, reflects the postmodernist theories, um, queer theories, critical social justice theories, including queer theory, critical race theory, and, and equity theories, um, which aren't uh, well described as yet. I think 
equity got left off a little bit. It was easier to point well, it. E- equity, funnily enough, was the, the, the big buzzword prior to COVID. And then it kind of, yeah. and you know, all of a sudden, equity replaced quality everywhere. And I know when I had conversations with people pre-COVID around the work I was doing with social justice, and the one explanation I would give to them is I would say, well, give me the definition of equality. And they would say, would you treat everybody equally? Right, now give me the definition of equity. Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? No, it's not. No, it's not. Yes. Yes. And and of course, they had been, and because you said the last four years, see, I would actually argue it's been going on at least for the last decade. But Absolutely. Yeah, but it's certainly become come to the fore. I mentioned before about some of those that um, that led this. And so let's look at that because this, again, is, yes. the, is the midwives, right? So the Midwifery Council. So on that council, a lay person would expect that that council would be made up of a group of their peers and they would be taking advice from, as you said before, key stakeholders that have a direct relationship for the care of a mother and a child in the birthing process. But that is not the case. No. The, so the, 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 the scope of practice was when we look at the council structure, you have the council uh, body corporate, which is a responsible authority under the HCPAA um, or the Health Practitioners Competence Assurance Act 2003. And they are responsible. There are 18 responsible authorities in New Zealand who are uh, legislated for for the purpose of uh, regulating their own profession. So physiotherapy, for example, has a council. uh, I think acupuncture uh, has a council. Specialised health professions have their own body that is legislated for in order to determine that the practitioners are safe and competent to practice. So that's the council's role. Um, And to administer all of the services that midwives actually need. So that's their job. Um, And they have, within the council, they created a project team that is, although they're under the auspices of the council, they're actually their own team and this is the team that have come up with the scope and they're headed by two chairs uh, one Dr Judith Makara Cooper um, a, a PhD not an actual doctor the same again with Dr Hope Tupara um, she is the co-chair so they've got the uh, the two co-chairs there. So what are their doctorates in? Uh, I forget I'm sorry. So <laughs> um, not so so not they're not medical doctors so these are PhDs Yes. Um, so they're academics, essentially. They're academics and midwives. Um, and uh, Dr. Tupara is also, um, the last time I checked, she was the president of the Māori Women's Welfare League. And uh, Dr. Makara Cooper has spent much of her career working in Bangladesh for, in midwifery. So they've got quite illustrious careers behind them and they're in positions of responsibility and uh, a great deal of trust has been entrusted, you know, put in them to run this process and then under them they have 17 other uh, other people on this project team which they've called the collaborative reference group uh two of them are men uh just lay people they're not obstetricians or, or they're they're community members who have contributed uh not all of them are midwives some of them are just community mem- members of the public and then the rest of them are midwives so they've they've been collaborating and talking together for a lot of it was over zoom over the last four years 
um, and they've uh, they've consulted with and used as sounding boards other academics. So that would include Dr. Elizabeth Kirikiri mm-hmm. um, and her her PhD and thesis. A former, dis- former disgraced Green MP for those that are having a bell ring but can't quite place the name. Yeah, continue. Yes, that one, yes. Um, we were kicked out of her own party for bullying everybody. So there was her, and she's obviously a queer, she's a queer theorist. Her PhD was written largely on, on sexual behaviour, um, and she's, she's, she's said in her PhD on page 82 that there is no evidence of any ideas about gender in pre-colonial Te Māori. That's quite clear. Mm. Um, I have interviewed Di uh, formally on this. She has more than one or two th- nuggety things to say on uh, Dr. Kitty. <laughs> yes, and, um, and, and well-deserved. This betrayal of Kitty, not only of her own thesis, but of history in general, to teach the Midwifery Council false history, I find very just incredibly offensive um, and objectionable. And then we have Dr. George Parker, um, who's a a self-proclaimed non-binary woman who works at, uh, she's a lecturer at uh, Victoria University, and she's also a senior health lecturer at the College of Midwives, or was, um, and she's certainly very involved there and has a, a, a great deal of interest in seeing midwifery education be converted to queer theory education. And again, her videos, uh, when she speaks, most people have a, 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 a quite a physical and visceral reaction. We can all tell when somebody is not quite compass mentis, I think, their body language. And George certainly has the sort of ecstatic look to her when she talks about mm. mandating people to be culturally humble to her own group of a special interest group um, in a way that most people find quite disturbing. Um, I, I looked at one of these videos, a fanatical actually would be, that was the descriptor that I would use. And as you're to reference your discussion about linguistics before, if you were a lay person coming in to listen to one of the videos from Dr. Parker, honestly, any person off the street would be thinking, okay, and I, I understand that those are English words coming from her mouth, but none of them make absolute any sense whatsoever because she is speaking a very high-level form of wokish that essentially is, uh, they like to use the term of those of us who are critical of critical social justice that we like to dog whistle to people on our side. Well, they have a full canine cacophony going on and hers was a symphony par excellence. So really couldn't put that better. It was, that's beautifully put. It really is. It's, I had to um, transcribe it. So that I, so that I could read it and and actually understand it, you know, and and see what it was that she was saying, and it, it's largely gibberish, um, but the um, but the the underlying message is cult- culturally, we can now redefine women as being under everybody, um, you know, the 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 importance of being. What George Parker specifically would like to see is mandated cultural humility, humility specifically in relation to trans and non-binary people, quote, and others, which means everybody else that she could con- consider marginalised. You know, it's just 
Mandated cultural humility is a very menacing phrase. If you take out the cultural from the, the, min- the, the middle and you just say mandated humility and then you restate that, what you get is forced subservience. Um, the cultural is, is, is one of those words that throws people off. They're not sure. What do they mean? Cultural humility to, to whom? To which culture? They get a bit confused and it slows them down when you say mandated cultural mm. humility. But, but that's what it means is forced subservience to any culture that the, that the stater sees. I sometimes, I sometimes say mandated cultural humility to people and they don't, they just no. go, oh, that's bad. And I say, no, mandated cultural humility. This is a terrible sentence, a, a phrase. It's very menacing. It, it it invokes ideas of superiority, control, uh, cruelty, oppression, suppression of speech. And we're talking about women giving birth here. This is a very dangerous place to but be. More than that is that non-adherence to the mandated cultural humility actually then puts on the line the career of the practitioner that is caring for that mother and that baby. Now, we as well not health and safety of the mother and baby. Exactly. And we all know the effect of a mandate. Now, um, a medical procedure where it is, you know, you're physically placing a needle into an arm and you're saying you do not have an option to do that in order to continue what you're doing. That is a very tangible, visceral thing. Yes. But what, you know, putting a definition behind mandated cultural humility, as you said, what culture, what defines humility? Whose perceived reality are you measuring this against? And who is the authority that gets to authorize what that actually is? And anywhere in the, those guidelines is they, those objectives and things outlined and specifically listed yes. so you know what you're measuring yourself against. Yes, that's right. That's absolutely right. And and the um so that's that's one of the elements of of the free speech argument. You get the the compelled speech and censored speech. You know, it's 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 only one part of it to say you're not allowed to say this anymore. It's actually easier to stop saying things than it is to force people to say things that they don't believe. <clears throat> and the and the midwifery council is attempting to do both. They're attempting to force midwives to say things that they don't believe. For example, the Fano has a baby. That's not true. The, the woman or wahine has a baby and the Fano is hopefully delighted, um, you know, and supportive, mm. but they're not the ones actually having the baby. Um, they can force midwives to say kahu pokai. They can force them to, they're attempting to you to force them to use te reo Māori in situations where that may not be appropriate. I object to this. I object to this as a linguist. I object. I, I just object. Full stop. Um, I object to the translations that they're providing for the Te Reo Māori words. They're not accurate. They're not being forthright. They're not being honest about what they're calling, what they're saying. Um, I think that that, that, that offends me. Uh, English will recover from this time it's a global language you know 
we it will recover from wokish. It will probably be changed, but it will recover. Whereas Te Reo Māori is one of the most vulnerable languages on the planet. Mm. Um, well, it's and, because it's such yeah. an involving language. I mean, in its uh, infancy, it was actually a very, very limited language, which has now, I mean, I can't remember the percentage, but I think there are new words, new reo that have been created, uh, more new reo that have been created what in the last 200 years than that, that has been in the entire history of the language. So, and that's the problem with the wokish, isn't it? Because they then take words like whānau and um, they, which is an established word, but they redefine it just as the wokish have taken the word racism and redefined that. And yeah. whilst, and as you said, internationally with English, you can potentially move that back. With reo, unless you're somebody who is an advocate for the language, uh, to do that, that's not going to happen. And from what I see, most of those are in that Tarao space in terms of perpetrating and and expanding and uh, keeping that language alive. They're contributors to the problem. So, yeah. Yeah. but that's I think another whole conversation off to to, yeah, so, to one side. I mean, the the thing about language is that any language on earth is capable of expressing an infinite number of ideas. If you wanted to, in any language, you could write a never-ending sentence or say a never-ending sentence. And all languages have concepts and ideas that don't exist in others. So when we talk about languages being lost, it's not about whether or not they they were large or spoken by a lot of people. It's about what they represent in terms of the human contribution to the story overall, our overall human story. And each language is a chapter, if you like. You know, every language tells a story, and it's and it's uh, and each time that we pass this on to our children, in our language, we pass on the sum total of our culture, which is everything we've ever known and absorbed from our parents, and we do this with our language and our stories. Once Tereo is changed, fundamentally altered, and the meanings of the modern words have been redefined so that they no longer bear any resemblance to the old words, the link between Old real from our childhood, if if we're roughly the same age, um, will be gone by the time that we are in our eighties. You know, mm. because the last speakers will also be gone, and those links, we can see the break the break in an oral tradition in an oral language from the arrival of Europeans. There is a break there. There is a continuity break in the language. And now we're looking at another one where there is a massive push to fundamentally alter not only the language but the history so that people can can no longer actually determine what is true and what is not of Te Reo Māori, which is an ancient language, in fact. It's not, uh, you know, in, in and of itself as a Polynesian language, it's relatively new. But as a as uh, as what's his name, the chap, the Tahitian chap who came with James Cook, um, I forget. Uh, um, but he was a translator, and he was able to speak Tereo from his own language, showing how connected it is to all the other Polynesian languages around the Pacific. And then that's a, that is a, a journey, a linguistic journey of tens of thousands of years. So when we talk about Te Reo Māori being altered and fundamentally changed to represent something dark, actually, and and unpleasant and hurtful, this is offensive to me in every possible way. Mm. Um, and 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 it distresses me 
that the language that that all these people are saying they want to protect, they're all out there, the midwifery council saying, we're going to, you know, we're going to have tetiriti or waitangi embedded in the in midwifery practice and we're, we're treaty honouring midwives and our, our reo is going to increase every day and, and all of this. This is just a cultural theft. Mm. You know, it's, it's linguistic damage. It's, it's wrong. It's really mm. wrong. Um, and then when we start looking at some of the translations, the things that they are saying in Te Reo Māori in that document, you would never, ever get away with in English, ever. Um, and I think that that's outrageous too. And a lot of people are, are looking at the scope. When I look outside in the world and I see people's reactions, they're saying things like, oh, uh, we're all being forced to speak you know, te reo and, and why are they doing this? You know, we don't want to speak te reo and, and why are they? Well, it's not like that. They're actually doing this to te reo. It's going to have a much worse impact mm. on the language than it is in English. Um, and, and then, of course, one of the things, as Di said, she really objects to it because what then happens is those that under, don't understand the nuance that yeah. we're discussing now, they just yeah. look at it and they just literally go, oh, it's those bloody Māori again. That's exactly right, and they get blamed all over the place for absolutely mm. everything, and it's wrong. Um, and and Di has gone on, uh, she has done a, a wonderful video with Katrina Biggs on her YouTube channel, which talks a little bit about some of these translations, but I'll just mention it again here now. Um, one of the one of the things that I see everywhere is, oh, um, why are they still called midwives? Wife is a woman's word. Why are they called that? Um, and this was something that interested me as well when I first started looking at all the language. I thought, why have they taken all the words for women and not midwife? What does kahu pōkai mean? Well, now we know why they can't translate that um, and why they've kept midwife. Because when you translate kahu pōkai, as Dyer has, has beautifully um, elucidated with Katrina, what you get is nothing that resembles midwife. Um, you know, the meanings ha include things like stillbirth and birds of prey. And you, the, 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 the phrase kahu or the word kahu can be applied as a prefix to other words to, to change the meaning. Um, so you get kahu in its first, first iteration as a noun. It is a bird of prey. It is a hawk, a harrier, a bird that eats meat with talons and rips and tears with beaks and whatnot. This is not a midwife figure. Then you get into the second meaning, which is to do with cloaks, feathered cloaks primarily, but also dogskin cloaks, seal, seal cloaks, painted cloaks, dyed cloaks, cloaks of mourning, cloaks that one might send to distant relatives to keep the flames of resentment alive over a death. Um, you know, these are these are the translations. Nothing to do with childbirth until you get to a roundabout meaning number three, which is where you start to see things like farikahu, um, which is the uh, a shed erected for high-born women. Uh, this is a concept that we don't need in midwifery: high-born women. Uh, no, thank you. They have attempted to to change. They've, I've been watching what they've been doing. And every time they put one of these new definitions up, they go to the Williams Dictionary and they write it word for word 
the definition that they've they've cherry picked out and they change one or two things. So for example, in when they're talking about the new name for the Midwifery Council and they're talking about kahu, they have selected from the series of meanings that is available, cloak, and they've changed cloak, which is a very it's a tangible cloak. It's an actual cloak. They've changed it to a metaphorical meaning so that it now acts as a sort of a, like a shield, you know. Mm-hmm. They've stretched this meaning. Um, and then the one of the third references to kahu is about uh, stillbirth, about the amniotic sac surrounding the fetus. And it's very specific in the dictionary that this is a fetus that um that we're that we're that it's, it's animal in nature this conversation um they're talking about the membrane surrounding the fetus but on the midwifery council website they've changed this meaning entirely a wonderful cloak surrounding acting as the membrane enveloping the baby no not baby fetus, fetus. we're talking about stillbirth here we're talking about still the spirit of a stillborn child and birds of prey and and cloaks of uh, you know that are sent to to keep resentment alive um and then on the following page when we start to get into the the references to other other words with the prefix kahu we come across uh kahukura the atua of the rainbow the rainbow gods so this is the these are the meanings that are that are publicly available, commonly available for anyone with a Williams dictionary. If you look up Kahu Pokai online, just in the Tiara dictionary, it doesn't exist. It's not a term. Midwife is Wahine Fakafano or Kai Fakafano. These are the words for midwife. They basically translate to birthing woman, which is a very standard. So we why have- do they not want to use that? They don't want to use it. Um, there's a there's a variety of reasons. They have removed all of the words for women and babies and childbirth and breastfeeding because once you do this, you have dehumanized and defemalized and uh, the entire process of childbirth. The baby, who now is no longer a baby but is simply a, 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 a part an of an object, an object, can then be sold, traded, uh, gifted shared uh, there's no connection here with any mother there's no connection here with any woman um they one of the things that is most fascinating about wokers woke wokish as a as a code is that or it has the 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 meaning that we can all see that sits that makes all of our that our shoulders go up and the hair stand up on the back of our neck and we don't like it. And then you can get down to the next layer, which is where you figure out what they're actually saying. And then you get down to the next layer, which is the bit that even they don't see. Mm-hmm. So the bit that's actually really revealing, you know, um where where you look at these definitions and and you think, have they actually thought about this? No. They thought about this, you know. Have they thought about the fact that they're describing themselves as birds of prey, a host of birds of prey who care for stillborn Mm. fetuses? No, you know. Are they have they thought about the fact that they're describing themselves as the rainbow gods? Mm. No, you know. Some of them, I believe, the true believers, do know this. 
and they believe that they they're ushering in a brave new future. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now, look, I just want to summarize some stuff before we because there's a couple of points that I just want to get to before we go. Now, so so if you've been listening to all of this, so we've got the we have the scope that has been essentially corrupted and co-opted by uh, ideologues, essentially, largely outside of the group of peers. So they have been contracted to do this. They've gone and taken this new scope, put it out for submission. 90% of people are not happy. The council then, in turn, quietly ignores the 90% puts the document out and just quietly slips it in at the end of the year. So I've got two questions that I want to sort of summarise and finish on, and I know you can do both. One, the first one is, is where is the Council of Midwives on this? And two, is it's it ain't over yet in the sense that has it been gazetted, has it actually gone through, and is there an opportunity with the new coalition government to actually roll some of this back? So let's finish on those two points. Okay, so the, uh, the College of Midwives? Yes, yeah. the College of Midwives. Where are they on this? Um, teetering. Um, still still holding the line, um, but they're, they're struggling. You know, they've got a lot of captured leadership, um, and and there, the push for the midwifery council is to capture the college. Once they do that, of course, then they can indoctrinate every midwife who comes through. So this is a very important goal for the ideologues at the midwifery council, and they're they're fighting hard mm, because uh, this new scope, if it gets passed, will weed out those yes. that will oppose. Yes. And then if they capture the college, they then can indoctrinate a fresh batch to replace, correct? Yes. It, I mean, so so the, so the scope itself um, is designed, the re, one of the reasons that they focused on the scope specifically was so that, that they could do this to midwifery education. They looked at what um, that, that what was what needed to be done. The original plan was simply to to go for the education uh, requirements and to re-educate all the midwives, but then they realised they couldn't do that unless they rewrote the scope. So that's why they did this, so that they had this grounding that underpinned everything. So then they could force all of the education to go along, um, because of course you can't make the college do this if you don't have a scope that says that's mm. how you practice. So that's one thing that they're doing um, in the midwife in the College of Midwives. As I understand it, they are still holding the line and saying no, we don't we don't think this is a good scope. But as I say, there are um, there are a lot of captured midwives at the college, and they're very determined. So if this passes, the college will fall. That's my opinion. Mm. And in terms of where it is, in terms of being passed into legislation so it can be enacted on against any midwife under the HPPCA, where are we at with that? Has it been gazetted or is it just in the fact that they have released it as they have ratified it, but it's not actually been codified into law? Where where are we at in that space? Where we're at, um, it hasn't been codified into law. And as far as I know, it hasn't yet gone to Shane Reti. So the process is that once they have completed whatever steps that they were that they were going to undertake, then the scope goes to Minister for Health Shane Reti. Once he has it, 
he is required by law to present it to the House. That is part of the legislation, the secondary legislation that governs scopes of practice. Uh, they must, the House Minister must present it in the House of Representatives. And one of the questions that I have been trying to answer now for a couple of months, and it's possible that the reason I can't find the answer is that this has never actually been tested before. The House it says in the secondary legislation that governs the process of a scope of practice that the House may disallow it. Now, whether that means that they disallow it because they're um, busy that day and they don't have time for the scope of practice or they want to reschedule, or whether they can disallow it because they have some actual kind of problem with it isn't clear in that legislation wording. So if anybody listening knows, I'd, I'd really like to know that answer. Once it goes to um, once it goes to the House, the odds are that they will allow it, and then from there it goes through to the Regulations Review Committee. Yeah, no, uh, so so there is still avenues that even though they ignored ninety percent of people in terms of their negative response, that you can actually start petitioning things in the House. Uh, so I, I was just looking up while you were saying that who those people are. So you've got Dr. Shane Reddy, but uh, Casey Costello. I mean, is she Casey a potential? ear that would be open to looking yeah, at this? Open to it, but she may not have any actual authority to to do anything. The The Minister of Health is, is the one who has to advance any scope. Um, mm. It's just part of his the legislation, so it has to come across his desk. We, uh, certainly MWK, are hoping that New Zealand First will carry it forward as well in their coalition discussions and their meetings mm -hmm. uh, so that there's pressure from within government as well as you know on Shane Reddy as well as from the public the best thing the public can do right now is to write to Shane Reddy and say you know and to sign Deb Hayes's petition because that petition uh, out of the first 90 petitions available online it's one of the only five that have anywhere over 4,000 signatures people care about this mm. please sign it um, it, the petitions office have buried it on page nine. Um, if you are struggling to find it, uh, Google Deb Hayes midwifery petition and you will get to a link to it. Um, it's out there. And the other thing is to, well, I say this to everybody, but so when we're, when we're talking about the midwifery council, please email Shane Reddy. Please, uh, please sign the petition. Um, Keep your eye open for anything from the Midwifery Council because their whole pattern of behaviour has been to be underhanded about this entire process. Um, they haven't given it up. They have been forced to make a public statement on the matter, which I don't think they were, I think they were hoping not to have to do. Three days after the article that I wrote in December came out, they took the scope of practice down from their website without explanation and they haven't put it back. I do have a copy, which I took as a web archived snapshot version from the 5th of December so it's an updated copy which is now no longer available so if anybody wants a hard copy of the scope of practice dated the 5th of December um, I, I can provide that um, the other uh, and certainly on the article uh, as well the midwifery uh, mandated cultural humility article um, I've updated the scope of practice link in there as well with another archived version so that anyone can access it and see what we're talking about here. Um, please do that. On the side of the uh, side of the scope of practice, there are links to all of the documents that they used, videos of them speaking, and you know you can see the brainwashing. 
Um, they've provided documents that they used for their indoctrina indoctrination, all kinds of things. So it's a very valuable. Mm. And I think this is quite important too, and part of the reason it's important because is that the Midwifery Council is the first one to have gone this far. And if they are successful, the Nursing Council and the New Zealand Medical Council will be very, very close behind because I know particularly in the New Zealand Medical Council and the Nursing Council, they are absolutely chomping at the bit to follow down this pathway. Yeah. There are key stakeholders who want to, to go in the same direction. And some of the same stakeholders are working across all three entities. And in this country at this moment, the way our legislation is structured, unlike other countries, so unlike Australia, unlike Canada, unlike the United States, our medical bodies only have one registration source within their own professions. There are no current alternatives. Alternatives have attempted to be set up they're currently going through the courts at the moment. And as I've mentioned and alluded to before, I will talk about that more extensively when I can. We don't have that right now. So yeah. we have the framework that we're given and the battleground that's very real and the battleground right now is with this um, yes. new code and uh, with, the, with the Midwifery Council and the power that they will wield yes. in, over midwives to control, coerce and effectively change how they can practice over woolly language that has no definition and is completely dependent on the thoughts and the ideologies of whoever is sitting on a panel of their peers when it comes to a disciplinary um, action. And that in itself is scary and dangerous. And we saw that with COVID. We saw how people reacted with COVID. There is absolutely no reason that when it comes to ideology and gender that that, does, that doesn't change. So th it, it, it is really quite scary. And, and you're absolutely right. This is a test case. Um, this The midwifery, if we can stop the scope of practice as a nation, it's going to have impacts. You know, if we're successful in actually saying no to the council and forcing them to, to stop doing this, that's going to impact midwifery councils all around the world um, because it, it, women's organisations everywhere are battling with these same issues um, and we've, we've caught them in time. You know, we have caught them in time. We've got time to say to Shane Reddy, no. You know, we've got time to say to the midwifery council, no, but it needs the public. Yeah, we need, it does the, need public. the public. Yeah, and the midwives so need us too. They, they're overworked, underpaid, they're an ageing workforce, and they didn't ask for this. No, no. And they would, I, I just, look, I, I know some midwives, um, some who mandated out, some who have gone back, and they, no, you're right, they did not ask for this. Just a couple of things. So I'm talking, obviously, with Sarah uh, Henderson. We are discussing what is going on currently with the scope of practice from the Midwifery Council. Do reference the Plain Sight um, article December 8, 2023, Mandated Cultural Humility for New Zealand Midwives. It's a great resource if you're wanting to look at a lot of the information we've discussed. And to be brutally honest, we've only just scratched the surface. One number, a couple of numbers I want to finish with that, that this is what chilled the marrow of my bones because the scope of practice that is out there at the moment and proposed did not address this. And that is in the four years that it took to create the scope of practice, approximately 40 New Zealand women died during childbirth or shortly thereafter, and 2,600 is the appropriate number, um, the approximate number of babies who died in childbirth or shortly thereafter in the same time. I'm sorry, Sarah, that's chilling. 
Yes, it is. It's really very chilling, and that those those figures haven't changed for fifteen years. You know, women are so still. So, how is the scope going to improve those numbers? It isn't. You know, we we know that it isn't, um, despite the fact that the uh, the Midwifery Council insisted it. There is a direct quote: "Will set a standards of excellence never before seen in the health sector." And I, I'm sorry, but I, I don't agree hmm. that. I call bullshit on that one, but I bullshit too. Yes. <laughs> so hey, look, Sarah, this is this is going to be unfolding across the year. So this isn't going to be our first conversation. I know that already. There is, I believe that for us now. The, yeah. the battle lines are now drawn. The fight has just begun, and this is why we're here at RCR. So I so appreciate your time this morning. If you're listening to all of this in a state of absolute disbelief, or you have something that you want to share, you've had an experience in terms of things with your midwives, or you want to have support, or any of the things, any of the themes that Sarah has brought up this morning, 2057 is the number to text it into, or inbox at realitycheck.radio. Uh, as I said before, that article is plain sight, December 8. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really do appreciate it. You're so welcome. Thank you. I hope that wasn't too too boring. <laughs> no, it was fascinating. And I think, that, yeah, as I said, this is just the beginning. So that's uh, Sarah Henderson here with Reality Check Radio. And don't disappear, still more great content here to come with Counterculture with Marie. Welcome back to Counterculture on RCR with Marie. That is singer-songwriter Josh Ritter with Change of Time. I want to thank Sarah for that fascinating conversation. And if you want to get involved and help add your voice to the Midwifery Council, who have refused to listen, then sign the petition. And also listen to Deb's interview with Paul here on RCR Breakfast. That replay can be easily found using our free RCR app or at realitycheck.radio. On the topic of adding your voice to things that matter, as you may be aware, submissions have opened for the COVID inquiry. This is your opportunity to have your say. Take some time now to make some notes on how the government's COVID responses impacted you. Were you or loved ones trapped by closed borders? Did your business suffer because of the lockdowns? Were you prevented from comforting family or being with a loved one in their final hours due to the odious rules or mandates? Did the mandates make you lose your job, business, marriage, family or something more? Now is the time to gather your thoughts and prepare a submission. There is a great website that can assist you in this process, covidinquiry.co.nz. That's covidinquiry.co.nz. Check it out and start preparing now. I can't stress how important it is that we have our say. That website again, covidinquiry.co.nz. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie for another Wednesday morning. And one of the things I love now about being here for nearly a year, can you believe it, is that I've got people that I've gotten to know really well. And one of those is joining me right now, Auntie Hey Hey herself, Karina Shields. Good morning. How are you? Good, Marie. How are you? So a girl goes away for five minutes and, um, you know, you get yourself into a whole bunch of poo, which we'll cover in a minute. We'll, we'll, yep. we'll you know, we'll ease into that part of the conversation. We will ease into that. Uh, I've, as you know, I, you and I caught up for a chat the other day, but I, uh, I had a bit of a detox, a media detox. There were a few things that snuck through the radar, and uh, I talked to Di about her little, uh, well, Philippa's scuffle the other day. However, the retox coming home, I arrived home uh, February 5. Yes, so, not long ago. Mm, so you can imagine arriving back to New Zealand 
with this, uh, the whole preamble into Waitangi, and I mean, it can it has always there is a lot of energy around that day that has built up yeah. over decades. So you can imagine for me coming back into this wall of of energy, and I looked at uh, so I retoxed straight back and looked at the media and the discontent that was being reported around Waitangi, and there was some positive. So. From your perspective, genuine grievance, sour grapes or tantrum throwing, deliberate campaign of rumour, lies and inconvenient truths to select, to further a select agenda or all of the above? Oh, a bit of everything. There's a bit of everything, yeah. There's a bit of everything in there. And what I've seen is that Party Māori are behind a lot of the weaponization that is going on. They are the main ones that are pushing Māori. Uh, let's not forget, they got 3% of the vote. There are over 500,000 Māori registered to vote on, across both roles. That's only 17,000 people that they represent of Māori. You know, yeah. when Māori make up 15 to 20% of the country, they represent the absolute minority of mm. Māori. And they've weaponized them to believe what they want and go and act so disrespectfully on Waitangi Day, not only towards our government, but towards our Māori politicians who come from the north. Now, for me to have Debbie and Rawiri encourage all of these people to go up there and be so disrespectful to Winston, David Seymour, Nicole McKee, people who actually come from the north, that to me, as someone from the north, was absolutely disgusting. That's, you know, see, that's a point that I have not heard because essentially you have had ones, what, I mean, what a Debbie and Rawari, te, um, te ra, uh, no, he was, he's Rotorua, isn't he, Rawari? So he's, yeah, he's down that way. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, so so essentially they've come up and um, shit and Shane and Winston's Nest. Well, I mean, Honey was there, to be fair. Um, I'd love to know, he's been, you and I have talked about this before, he has been very conspicuous by his absence for a very, very long time, and then hello, like there's no party without punch, there he was, and it's the first time we've seen him for a long time. I found that very, very interesting because he's turned up now um, with a whole bunch of not a lot to say, I thought there was lots and lots of bluff and bluster, and and he was. It's almost like he was trying to channel his late mother, but um, it it was kind of like was this a symbolic, yeah, speech, well, or or is it because he felt that he needed to say something? I found that rather it was weird, actually, for me. It is now. Here's the thing: he's jumped back into bed with the party Maori. So on the 8th of March, there's an event that they're selling tickets for. Now, these tickets are between $60 and $100, and it's called the I Am the Sovereign event. Now, Hune Harawira is speaking, um, Pere Huriwai Sega from Aotearoa Liberation League, um, Mihi Narangi Forbes, Joanne. Joanne is speaking. Joe Forbes, she there. Yeah. Go mm. Forbes. Um, hey, but she'll have, a sp- she'll have a spiffy frock, so I wouldn't worry about that. Yeah. Mm. Taku Teferis is another one that's speaking. Now, what this event is about is about them sharing their mātauranga and their mātumatanga, their knowledge and their insight of the Treaty of Waitangi. Yeah, it's on to Party Māori's um, Facebook page. Okay, so this is, 
this so essentially a group of activists are going to share their knowledge yep. of the treaty. So we're uh, the other side of that equation. Like you and I just said before we got started, like we had Margaret Mutu on with Paul yep. the other day, which last week, and uh, and it was great to have that conversation. We've also had to have Dr. Elizabeth Router, and I said to you, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing to get both of those together in an interview exactly. at the same time to lauded academics yeah. discussing this. Why aren't they at that event? Yeah, exactly. Why are they not at that event? Why do we not have proper public respectful discourse and conversation about, about you know, these topics that are hot topics right now? Mm. There were nearly 3 million people that voted. Mm. No, 3% of the vote doesn't count for much when nearly 3 million people voted. Well, in that courier taxpayers poll, if yeah. I were those who were behind the scenes at Te Party Māori, and we potentially might get onto that part of the conversation in a minute, he's one of your favourite people, um, yeah, I would have looked at that and would have seen that as a bit of a wrinkle because the, I mean, whilst Te Party Māori had a little bit of a, actually a little bit of a bump after the election in their previous poll, they've now dropped back. So that definitely shows that some of the shenanigans leading into Waitangi, um, both you know, on both sides of the debate. Because believe me, I don't believe Seymour's one hundred percent right on what he's looking at either. But oh, that's that's the entire point of got putting a bill like this through Parliament is so you yes. can actually have the discussion around it. And if it does move forward, you iron out the kinks. Yep. And what right? parts Maori have done? is that they've pushed this narrative without telling people that the treaty principles haven't been around that long. The treaty principles are younger than my parents. No, well, they pushed the narrative that it's actually the rewriting of the treaty. It is not the rewriting of the treaty. They're looking at the treaty principles, which are younger than my parents and have been kicked around by governments and the Waitangi Tribunal for years. And it's just around getting clarity on those principles and finding an agreement because the public haven't been consulted on the principles in the past. It's always been government officials, Waitangi Tribunal, who have made these decisions. So I'm not sure why Te Pāti Māori aren't encouraging this discourse. Mm. So here's a thought that I have for you, and I tried to raise it with Donna, and she actually put Donna Porkitty Phillips um, the other week. One of the things that I see in a cultural perspective is that when you have causes that start running to their natural conclusion, that you then have a swathe of activists that need to find a new cause. So an example of that would be uh, within the LGB community. So you had all of the gays and lesbians that worked really, really hard for uh, initially legalisation and acceptance within a legal framework. And then once they achieved that in many nations, they then moved on to uh, equality under the law and then marriage equality was probably the final step in that. And then once marriage equality happened, pretty much in most Western hemispheres, they had achieved everything. They were fully integrated and accepted as members of a functioning society as they should be. But then all of a sudden you have a lot of the activists on the fringe of that um, kind of done themselves out of a job, really, and they need to have somewhere to look. And a lot of those ones are the ones that are now stoking a lot of the trans activist agenda. So, you know, they found themselves a new job. 
I look at what's going on here and with Napui being the big exception, pretty much most iwi now have settled with the crown in one form or another. Yeah. Uh, Tainui led the way. All of them have these parody um, sweetheart deals that get bumped up as each progressive settlement is made. So they will, you know, like they're still clipping the ticket. I mean, what's it now? 20, 30 years, 30 years since yeah. Tainui did theirs. So is this a case of they're now setting the stage because they're all of a sudden thinking, oh, you know, we need to. We need to keep the risk going. That's what it comes down to, is money. We need to keep the grift going. And Te Pāti Māori have been behind a lot of these narratives. COVID, for example, John Tamahiri went to court for the private details of unjabbed Māori. Why? Because the charity that he heads got a big chunk of money from Labour to jab Māori. Debbie got a job as a vaccinator to jab Māori. And then all of a sudden we get to 2023 and the Natural Therapeutics Bill and to party Māori all of a sudden support Rongoa Māori. Where was their support of Rongoa Māori during COVID? <laughs> during jabs. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm so they are consistently looking for that next grift that is going to keep the money coming into, into their pockets. Now John Tamahere Waipareta back in 2017, before Jacinda got in, they were worth cash and cash assets, $8 million. 2023 report came out, their financial report, $64 million. That's a lot of needles and a lot of brown arms, Karina. Yep. In six years, it's a huge jump. Between 2022 and 2023, it was around $14 million. You know, I would love to know the OIA on the breakdown of because so I mentioned a Matt Rippett yeah. uh, article and he which was great. It was a great article and he talked about the salaries. Uh, you know, 13 executive on the board and the with average salaries what five hundred and seventeen thousand dollars, the highest paid charity um managers in the country. But not once, not once in that article he addressed where the charity was sourcing their income from. And I'd love to see OIAs of what the contracts were issued, the value of those contracts, and the service delivery on those contracts. Wouldn't that be an interesting thing to see? Honestly, do it as a submission and put it in for New Zealand first to make it part of the inquiry. That's what I'd be doing, is putting in a submission for them to look at the financial for all of these people that, received money, COVID funding, especially charity organisations. Because when they're handing out hangi and vouchers to get people jabbed, you know that there's money coming out. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you look at, I know that uh, the media, there was the, what was it, 217 or 250-odd thousand dollars for a van to go up to uh, do vaccinations up in Northland and it only managed to reach something like 19 people? Yeah. You know. they, they spent or wasted, actually, wasted huge amounts of money to get people jabbed for something that doesn't even work. Maori mm. mm. have been used to push these jabs and they've been paid off. Now, the interesting thing about Party Māori and Waipareta, because John Tamahiri heads both of them, 
is that ever since the jabs, John Tamahita has also been bribing people to do things like get on the roll, to vote, do the census. Now, to me, when they were bribing people to go and do the census, I was like, okay, that means that nobody can be prosecuted for not doing census because Party Māori have already been out there bribing people instead of using the law to charge people the fines that you can get for not doing the census. Right? John Tamahiri is bribing people, so nobody else can be held accountable for not doing the census either. Mm. Where did the money come from for that? And these were expensive things that they were giving away, like beat mixes and personalised shoes, like Nikes and Adidas shoes that they were giving away. $100 vouchers or $100 cash to get on the mouldy roll or to mm. go and do the census. And, and I'm sorry, you can't separate... You can't separate the fact that they know. I mean, I'm probably, you live in the area that Waipareta services. I'm sure there's lots of talk about Uncle John. Uncle John gave me this, Uncle John gave me that. Oh, we better vote for XYZ. I mean, it's people know you can't, it's like, oh, no, 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 you need to separate this from the work that they do with the political party. I mean, that, that, no, that doesn't work in a country this size. It doesn't work also because John Tamahiri used Waipareta charity money to fund his election campaigns. So when you're using charity money and funding election campaigns, why have they not been stripped of their charity status? Because we know, what is it, Family First got stripped mm. of their charity status for something minor in comparison to what Te Pāti Māori have done. Te Pāti Māori, I heard at the end of last year, we've also been investigated for hosting, Waipurei were hosting to party Māori's launch campaign for the election. They were being investigated for that because as a charity, they're supposed to be politically neutral. But mm. if you live in West Auckland, especially local to Waipurei, you know that they are not politically neutral at all because you see Debbie, Rawiri, John's faces on their bands. You know, they mm. are Waipurei. Mm. Well, it will. Yeah, I know. I, I think investigate. I think. Well, it, uh, Winston has indicated that uh, this is certainly something that he has. I think there's a bit of utu going on there. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So I think reality, it does need to be looked into. Yeah, because yeah, it so. would be if it was any other charity. Yeah, and also too, I mean, the fact that uh, what did he he played the racism card in that article? You know, he. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just kind of like John you know, you can't play this card anymore. You know, this is, yeah. you know, it's it, it's losing its power over the people, I think. It will, be, it, is, it will yeah. be interesting to watch the space. We, we, do you know, you know that there are ongoing um, sort of private journalistic investigations going on. So do you think that there's going to be more coming out on this? Is it evolving? Oh, I think there's definitely going to be more coming out on this, especially as they get deeper into that COVID inquiry, if they're looking at the right areas and money is a big one, then, yeah, I think there's definitely more to come. Oh, we'll have to watch the space on that one, Karina. Now, the other thing that, the one thing that did sort of pierce, and I mentioned it earlier, my little veil of detox while I was away, was you actually were in the trenches yourself on the X. So tell us a little bit more about that, because when you and I caught up before I went away, you were fundraising madly 
for I Am Hope, you went underwent the Clippers, and unlike most people that just you know get a, a, a pretty reasonable haircut, no, you went whole hog, sweetheart. You you were as bald as a badger and raised a whole heap of money. Tell us, eight, firstly, how much you raised and what's gone on since then. I mean, I was like, well. So $3,000 came through from that event. There were still things that I had to do to fundraise more money for I Am Hope. Now, back in January, while you were on holiday, I wrote an article about online bullying because I had received a message from somebody telling me to go and off myself and do the world a solid. And so I wrote an article about how much worse the online bullying is getting, especially since the election. Well, boy, did it get even worse after that. I had a bunch of people, namely, there were two guys mainly, um, who contacted the charities that I work with and have fundraised for. Not just I Am Hope, but also another charity event that my whanau and I have been a part of for years. And so consistent were they in this online bullying that Mike King himself made a very public statement that I Am Hope never supported me, that I didn't have a contact at I Am Hope, and basically blasted me in front of everybody. Now, unfortunately for Mike, I have numerous videos that prove that I Am Hope were actually at my event, that one of their workers spoke at the event, and I have witnesses that say that Mike was there. And so from where I'm sitting, it looks like Mike has been led by a bunch of lying men, because that's what they are, to then become a lying man himself on X in front of everybody. Now, when I first saw it, I looked at it and I went, this can't be right because you were at my event. And I asked, has this account been hacked? Are you being for real? The next day I had a conversation with my contact from Home Hope because um, I emailed her and I was like, what's up? Was this him? She came back and said, yeah, it was him. And he's really passionate and he shoots from the hip. And I said, you know, this never needed to go this far because all he needed to do was come and have a conversation with me first. And we could have cleared it up because I understand that Mike has strong views on the LGBTQ community. It was told to me. Now, so I is have, he angry at you because you are gender critical? So yes. is, that, is that the beef, yeah, right? That's the okay. issue, is that I am gender critical. And I said to her, if Mike had a conversation with me, he would know that I have had gay people in my life longer than I have been alive. I've had gay people in my family for years. So being gay or part of the rainbow community isn't the issue. It's what is happening to the children that is the issue. And I told her that I needed to sit on it to even go ahead with the fundraiser because of what Mike had said last year after Albert Park. But I decided that the cause was more important than the man. So I continued with it for the children, for the rangatahi, mm. just for him to go and do what he did. Now, what as it stands at the moment, I have made police reports. I have made reports to NetSafe. And the people that have contacted Mike are the people who are named in my NetSafe summary. And so there is that tie. And what NetSafe have said is that they've found two things, that false allegations have been made 
and harmful digital content communications. Mm. And so now I'm able to take those people to court and I'm looking, I've been in communication with a lawyer to try and clear this up because as far as I'm concerned, I've done everything right. I've told the truth about these things Mm. and now growing men are trying to throw me under the bus because I'm a gender critical, outspoken Maori woman. Mm. Mm -hmm. It is very, very interesting to see, and you're right, the uh, online bullying has certainly ramped up. And you and I, when we chatted the other day, um, sort of we actually compared notes because, of course, I went through this 2019, 2020, early 2020, and it is there has certainly been an elevation in uh, the the bullying. But what I was really pleased to hear was the fact that NetSafe now have obviously been um, ramped up to be able to do something about it. Whereas at the time that I was going through it, it was the legislation was freshly minted and it hadn't had a chance to sort of bed down and what resources they had behind it. So they couldn't do much with it. And this is one of the things, one observation that I'm having with this is now that there has been a change of government, which is essentially the population, the, the people, sending a message to those, you know, to the to the representatives. Right, we're not happy how we were represented with this group. We now want to be represented by this group, and a lot of those bad faith actors that are in that social and ideological space are really just tossing their toys out of the cot over this. like, And I think that actually has created an intensification online because they know that they no longer um, hold the keys to the castle, so they have to sort of fight more viciously in the trenches. Is that a sort of feeling that you've had post-election? Yep, yep. and I've said that, that now that we've had the change of government, we've got those people that have been propped up by Labour and the Greens and Party Māori, they are falling apart absolutely falling apart because they don't have the government to back them up anymore with the nonsense that they were doing. No? Mm. And so that the intensity of the bullying mm. is definitely getting worse. And I, I do wonder with Mike King too, you know, what pressures are being placed on him. You know, he's running this charity. He's deeply passionate about it, and we know yeah. that. And as they said, he shoots from the hip. But it makes me wonder what influence has been applied to him from the rainbow community, uh, exactly. and and the you know all the little PR friends and buddies and everything. You know, it's kind of like no, mate, this has got to go, yeah. or we're going we're going to stop supporting you over here. I, I, I do wonder whether there's a sense of that going on as well. Yeah, I think the same thing. Like, what is it that they have over you, or what money are you getting? Because everything leads back to money. Mm. What money are you getting that is making you act like this? Now, no, the email that I saw that Mike had sent to one of these people said that he had never met me or talked to me. But I can tell you that a few years ago at a Calvin Crookshank show, I gave Mike King a white feather. Not after hearing his story that night, I gave him a white feather. I asked him about that white feather in November. He still had it. Mm. And yet in his emails, he's telling people, we've never talked, we've never met. That wasn't the story three months ago. Mm. And so, you know, what else is happening behind the scenes? Yeah, 
because there were some things that she said that personally I don't think she should have said pertaining to Mike's family, for example. I'm not going to repeat what she said, Mm. but she stated things pertaining to Mike's family. That's got nothing to do with me. His family relationships have absolutely nothing to do with me. I'm the kind of person that will keep my politics out of things for the cause. Mm. And to have these people contact not just I Am Hope, but also the other charity event that I was doing, I walked away from that charity event to save that charity from the backlash that these people, and they they think that they've won because of it. Yeah. that's Yeah, that's not the case. I will turn over every stone that I need to to bring these issues to light because it is not just me. No. There are other women who are being targeted by these same groups of people. Well, the, I know the Landy sisters have uh, certainly received a lot of flack, and they don't actually have particularly big online profiles. So for it to sort of pierce through them, it's been really difficult. What are some of the other um, things that you're hearing from other others who have been brave enough to stand up out in the social media space? What are, what are some of the things that are coming back uh, to land at their doors? No, I've heard that a lot of these people that are doing this right now are all connected. And if you look, like, I've got a whole list of names. Mm. And if you look, they're all connected. And a lot of them eventually go back to Party Māori. It's like the six degrees of separation stuff that is going on with them. And I'm just like, oh, this is insane. And it is mostly women that this is happening to. The attacks are on women especially Māori women, if you're a Māori woman with a big mouth like the Landy sisters and myself, we are huge targets because they don't want us telling the world that we're not victims, (laughs) that we're not oppressed, that we're not victims of colonisation. So they need to keep us quiet, and that's what we are finding across, Mm. yeah. So there there you go. That's a bit of a nub because I've actually written down here uh, one of the questions that I have are what are the key grievances that should actually be addressed by Māori? Housing. Why is it that Tainui have empty houses where their iwi offices are while there are people down the road living in motels? Why are there not houses on iwi land? I did see that Rawari bill got drawn out about the GST on Kai. I don't have an issue with GST being taken off some kai, like fruit and veggies and things, but they want it taken off all kai. Why do they want to make cheap junk food cheaper? Why? How does that help people's health? Shouldn't we be bringing the price of fruit and veggies and meat down to meet the prices of junk food so people are getting better options instead of making cheap junk food cheaper? How does that help our health? If they're so concerned about the health of Māori, why junk food? Why fizzy drinks? Doesn't make sense to me. There are so many other things that they should be concentrating on. Education. We have lots of opportunities as Māori to get educated. There are lots of scholarships and programs and things. Why are they not encouraging our Māori youth to do better and be better because they know better. They'd rather play the colonisation game, they'd rather play the victim game because poverty makes people money. There's mm. money to be made in poverty. 
That's why they do it. So, and of course, there are people working in the space, whether it be in poverty, whether it be Māori, Pākehā, it doesn't matter. There are really good people working in those spaces and things are working. So Family First do a lot of work in there. Um, the churches love them or hate them. The Tamakis do a huge yep. amount of work in that space. Um, City Impact, um, all the, the modern churches, the traditional churches all work in that space. Why is it then? That's why I wonder, It's no highlight gets put on all the good work that's been done in some areas, but then you've got something like the Waipareta Trust that has been paid millions and millions and millions of dollars to deliver services to yep. Māori. What are they actually delivering? What services are, are they delivering? No, nothing to me. I've never signed up to Waipareta as a client. The only time that I've ever been into Waipareta was to get my Privacy Act request from them because mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to be involved with them. Yeah. I know one of my siblings used to go to the doctor there. It cost her $10. Now, this was before the prices all came down. I used to pay $50 to go and visit my doctor because I would rather pay that and get quality care than pay $10 to any Tom, Dick or Harry that I saw going down there. I wanted consistent care. And I, there was no way I would get that from my potato, seeing a different doctor every time I went down there. Mm. So if anyone actually from my potato is hearing this and going, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about, she's full of, you know, crap, um, give me a yell. 2057 is the text, inbox at Um, because I'd, uh, you know, I'd love to know. I'd love to know what it is that you're doing because that's the thing. I've not seen it anywhere in the media, um, whether it be legacy or otherwise, to actually tell us, uh, you know, because, you know, a lot of money has rolled through the trust, but I'd love to know where that impl implementation has gone, you know. Is it, uh, you know, where the health service has gone, how many needles went into how many arms, are, are you doing housing programs, are you getting, I mean, are you telling me that within the zone that you're in, in West Auckland, there are no people in motels anymore because you're actually able to house those people for the however many million that you've got. I'd love to hear your good news story. So give us a yell, 2057. We'd love to hear from you. Um, Absolutely. I'd love to hear, a, you know, a good story from them. But when I'm hearing stories like, they dropped some of their youth programs so that they could continue jabbing people. And that came from an ex-worker. Yeah. Someone that I met that, that used to work for them who left because he was working with youth programs, but they favoured jabbing people over working with those youth. Yeah. And see, education, I think, you know, you've really hit on a big one there because education as we know is the key for so many people who um, are struggling and they want to get out because you know knowledge yeah. is power and and just the truancy rates I mean yeah. truancy rates post-COVID I mean I know that one of the focuses from Erica Stanford is to actually address those and kids are just I mean I see it with my sons I mean I've got a year 12 and a year 13 and one of their closest friends has not gone back to school this year he dropped out actually towards the beginning of last year and he started a course and he's really struggling dreadful anxiety uh post lockdowns and you know they you know trying that as a friend group is supporting him but he's not the only one i've so many of these kids are feeling completely yeah. disenfranchised and they, they are. and they and then when they do go to school what they're being taught I mean, my my year twelve, he comes home moaning endlessly about the curriculum, 
And history is one of my bugbears at the moment. He loves history. He loves it's one of his favorite classes. And he was coming home and telling me like last year, one of the things, the key things they studied in year 11 history was the Springbok tour. Well, I have to admit, I did have to say to his history teacher, to be fair, who was born probably in the late 90s, that I would prefer that history that was taught was something that fit for me didn't feel like yesterday. So history, actual history, go back a bit further than that. Yeah, but the curriculum, you see, this the is the thing, the rot, the, the rot set in at the top. And I know Stanford has got a huge um, a huge issue, and, and Elizabeth Rath, we know, is one of the ones being part of the Listener 7 that, you know, rang that bell a few years yep. ago. And, you know, all of those academics were absolutely chastised for doing so. So, yeah, yeah as you said, there's a lot of fish to fry. Yeah, it is a case that needs a major overhaul. Like, mm. for me, we would be working on the basics while they're in primary and intermediate. And then by the time they get to high school, start doing things that are going to give them life skills. Make driver education part of the education curriculum so that when our kids are leaving school, they have a full license, they can get a job more easily, you know? Well, they do it in the United States, so I don't see why they can't do it here. Exactly. And at least then we know that our children are going to get proper driver education rather than just from mum and dad who don't have the patience to teach them in the first place Mm. or teach them sloppy habits, Mm. you know? Make some real-world experiences in high school. They are capable of handling real-world experiences in a controlled environment Mm. because once they get out into that big open world, it is a very scary place and they are not going to be ready to handle it. Especially with the things that are being taught now, where everything's all about a feeling. And one of the concerns that I had was the report that was out in regards to job seeker benefits. A lot of these kids are leaving school. They don't, they're not wanting to go into, you know, the first year free did not attract these kids into education. You know, they were failed at high school. They weren't attracted into education. They go into job seeker and, and they rot. They stay at mum and dad's in the back bedroom or in the shed or wherever that wherever they are, and they just literally rot and and don't get out there, and they become fearful of the world. So, you know, you're a mum, I'm a mum. How how do we stop these kids being afraid of real life? I'm fortunate with mine. He's not. He is not afraid of real life, and he goes out and he's very subtle about the way he does things. He's a lot more subtle than me against things he doesn't he doesn't like, and so. I don't have too many concerns about him, but I do wish that the school would offer more real-world experiences for him so that when he does leave school, it's going to help him and help his life. For me, he's in the Māori unit at the school, um, and I love it because we have more say. See, we have whānau hui every month, and we have a say about what they're teaching our tamariki and what we want them to teach and things that we're not happy about. And I don't find that in mainstream is that that consultation with families doesn't happen very much in mainstream. Is that affecting but, positive change at the school for these kids? It is, it is for my boy, I've found. Last year, because I made him do it, 
because I said to him, this is your connection to your culture and we do this just for us. It's not about showing off to the world or anything. I said, but I want you to have some kind of cultural connection. And so he did it begrudgingly. But what I found this year is that he's embraced it. He wants to do kapaka this year. Like he's dedicated to going to the practices because they're preparing for, for Polyfest next month. And so he understands more Te Māori than he did last year. So I can say things to him and he understands me and he'll go off and do whatever I say. So I think for him, at least that I've seen, it work, it is working better for him as opposed to the mainstream system, which was failing him. Mm. It was really, really failing him up until, yeah, we got him in. And now he seems to be thriving and enjoying it. And the other thing I do like about the school where he's at is they have a building academy that students can join for their seniors. And every year they build a house as part of their program. And I said to him, look at doing a trade. I've had this conversation with all of my nephews. Look at a trade when you're older. I said, because a job that you can do with your hands is going to pay you more money than you sitting in the office. I said, but not just that. I said, people are going to always want your skills. You're going to be able to build a house for your family. You can't AI yourself a house, eh, Karina? You can't AI yourself a house, so get into a trade. I said, look, there's three of you big boys. One of you go be a builder. One of you go be a plumber. (laughs) One of you go be the architect. Use your sisters to go be the interior designer. And the four of you together could go build a house, you know, when you get older. So I've been putting those ideas in their head rather than going to university, which is where I'm finding a lot of the indoctrination is coming from. Yeah. yeah. And so my boy was on a holiday program, and part of that was a leadership program. Part of that, they went to Auckland University. And that day, they saw lots of non-binary and rainbow flags at the university, and they said, so how did the boys handle that? Because it was just boys' group. And they're like, ugh. They just looked at it and went, ugh. Someone wanted to rip it down. My boy, being the person that he is, I wanted to spit on it. Okay, all right. And so he's had those conversations with me. Why does my school have a non-binary flag in the library? And I said, so what happened with that? He goes, well, I went and asked the librarian, what does it all mean? I said, and what did the librarian say? Well, she didn't know, so we had to look it up. I said, so why are they hanging these things there? Mm. Now, his biggest bug about that was why do they not have a New Zealand flag hanging in the library but they have rainbow flags and non-binary flags so that's his biggest bug at the moment is Mm. yeah the the LGBTQ stuff it's really it's really interesting your observation with your son on that because uh one of the things I'm seeing with my boys and you know and this is with their friend group right because they've got boys and girls and my boys at Catholic boys school and a lot of the girls that they're friends with are catholic girls right what i've noticed are the are the boys seeing through all of this ideological stuff like they're looking at it going this is crap absolute crap like totally seeing through it the girls are sucking it up like the kool-aid and getting grumpy with the boys and you know essentially the only boys that i'm seeing that are now conceding with it are the boys that think that they want to be girls or the girls that think that they want to be boys and uh uh, and or they're doing it to appease a girl that they want to kiss or you know do more so than that as marty likes to say uh 
And yeah, it, and it's really for me the the solution to that is to get these kids together in person. And I'm so interested to hear what you're saying with the Kapahaka and with the Building uh, Academy. I think these kids are getting disconnected. And the girls you see, they spend much more time on devices, you know, on the, in the talker tick and, and, the, and yeah. the snappy chat and all that kind of stuff. And I just wonder how much of that is sending them down a pathway when really life is right in front of them and, and they're not living it because they're too busy looking at a screen and not looking up. Yeah, and I've noticed that too with the difference between boys and girls is that especially our teenage boys now around my boy's age mm. is that they're just like, this is all weird shit. This is absolute crap. Like, this is nuts. I can't make heads or tails of this and they, they don't want to borrow of it. But I've noticed the girls are different and those are the ones that I'm the most worried about because what damage are they doing to our girls? Yeah. 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 It's like Albert Park, there was one girl that was screaming in my face. And there was nothing in her eyes. Her eyes were just black. And I'm just like, wow, where are you? Because there was no getting through to her. Well, and, and it's that anxiety too. Like th there's lots of this mass hysteria that's gone on, right? And my theory too, with a lot of the hysteria that's been created around this principle of the treaties bill, is to party Māori have been very, very clever to take the anxiety uh, from one group and they man it manifested around COVID, then it manifested yep. around um, the trans genocide and inverted commas, it, it manifests around climate, and they weaponise that. And, and there is, the groups of people are the same. All the people yep. that are angry about this are angry about the same issues. And I don't think they actually have an understanding understanding of the issues that they're uh, angry no. about they're just triggered to be yeah. angry they are they are absolutely triggered to be angry and I've noticed that myself over the last few years that I'm finding that the same people that want to abuse me online are the same people who have abused me over COVID they're the same people who abuse me over gender ideology they're the same people who abuse me over the treaty issues it is the same groups of people over and over again with a different narrative. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, it, it's, uh, it is quite interesting. The tap, tap, tap on this, like uh, Matthias Desmet talks about it, you know, you need to break the frequency, the tap, 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 the tap, 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 the tap, 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 which is what you do in yeah. X. It's what um, we do here at RCR. That now, I think that tap, tap, tap is starting to work. And the, and the first place that we saw that starting to work is with the election. So. Yeah. Um, and it's all those people in the middle. It's those ones who are that go along to get along. They're working. They're paying mortgages. They're trying to get food on the table. They've got you know bigger fish to fry to be worrying about whether or not they've misgendered or used the wrong pronoun for somebody. You know, normal people. And they use the election as a vehicle to say, "Carl, we're over this now. We you know we just want to get on." I'm. I have been saying how I'm beginning to see a little shift. Uh, and that people are being a little bit braver. Are you seeing a little bit more bravery from those that have been quiet in, in the previous sort of six years? I am. I'm seeing that more and more that people are like, okay, and yeah, yeah, you've said all this stuff. I feel like I can start saying things now. I feel like da da da. And people have been saying more and more. And I'm like, yes, thank you. 
finally, this is what I've been trying to encourage. We need to have this discourse. And I've always said, you are never going to find somebody who will 100% agree with you 100% of the time. Mm. It is not realistic to think that somebody's always going to agree with you. But through conversation, we can find common ground. Mm. But you ask any of those that like to abuse me and I'm just a transphobe and I'm homophobic and da 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 because they don't want to have a conversation because throwing a label at me shuts down the conversation from happening because that's the easier option is to shut down the conversation rather than to have it. But that mm. doesn't solve problems. No, no. Yeah. Um, so I am Hope, Mike. Any of the yep. team from Iron Hope, we'd love to, to catch up and chat because th- this is the thing that's finding that common ground. And the big yep. bit of common ground that we all have is the fact that what you guys are doing and what you've been able to achieve with, you know, the lack of government support, support that you have had, I mean, Absolutely. you should have had a lot more, has been absolutely amazing. And that's the other side of it too. Let's park the stuff that you disagree with and actually, and I mean, this is what I find really sad, yeah. you know, if there has been pressure that have been placed by those trans activists on Mike or the team at I Am Hope to actually yeah. stop someone like you from supporting them, to me it's just like really, because that's that's not helpful. That's not helpful for the kids that need to get mental health support. That's yes. not helpful for those who are struggling after the disasters that we're having down here. You know, that is, that's deconstructive, not constructive. So, okay. you know, let's um, have a catch up and let's see what we can uh, make happen and you're right Karina it's it's finding the common ground and working on that building the bridge on 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 the stable stuff that we both can stand on um, and and filtering out the noise yeah and see as a result of what's happened people have gone if this is how Mike treats supporters of his charity this isn't a charity that I want to support and for me, that has always been the unfortunate thing. And I've said that to them in my emails is that it is the charity, it is the children, it is the rangatahi who are going to fall victim to what these bullies are doing. And that's not right. What are they doing to help these children? What are they doing to help youth? Or are they just online trying to crap on everybody else? And ultimately, they don't care about the children. No, no. That's, that's just how I see it. These bullies don't care about the children at all. They care about their narratives and they care about putting money in their pocket. Mm. Well, as it, it is that old adage is follow the money. That yeah, is for sure. The money. Yeah. Well, you and I will always be catching up. We um because there's always more to say. Uh so yeah. we will I will stay in touch with Karina with this unfolding around all of these things. And as always, it's good to have a good old, you know, you know, get good old chat with your mate, eh? It is. It's great to have a catch up and just, you know, put some things out there and keep these conversations going. Yeah, and as I said before, any, no, if anyone, I don't know things. I know you don't know, and so we can compare. Yeah, and if, as yeah. I said before, invitation, anyone from the Waipareta Trust or I am Hope, if you want to come and talk to me, come and have an adder. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'd, you know, I'm you happy, happy to listen. Them. I would yeah. encourage them to come and have an adder with you. Yeah, I'm, come and have the portal. 
Come and have a quarter. I'd love to hear from you. 2057 yeah. is the text. Inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. And if you guys have listened to this and got some thoughts, um, share those with us as well. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, Karina, as always, I love it. Um, oh, and actually, I mean, if they put in Auntie Hey Hey, will they still find Auntie Hey Hey? But you, you've changed now. You've gone uh, fire. Yeah, so if they put in Auntie Hey Hey, it'll still be there. Oh, good. That, the fire punga wera wera is just a temporary thing. Thanks to Waisangi Day. Yeah. Very good. Very good. As always, don't disappear. There's still more great content here to come, including in my mate, Marty. We'll be here with Media Matters very, very soon. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. And joining me now is Kellyanne Kearney. She is the organiser of the New Zealand's Love Grace Handbag Appeal for 2024. This caught my eye, Kellyanne, on Facebook, and we've reached out. What is it? This looks brilliant. It's a really brilliant idea. So tell us a little bit more about it. Thank you. Um, So the Love Grace Handbag Appeal was created by Grace Mullane's family in the UK. Um, A lot of us will already know Grace Mullane's name from her tragic passing back in 2018 in New Zealand, which I think is why so many people resonate with this appeal and this cause. Uh, So it was created by their family in the UK to bring uh, Grace's love for handbags uh, merging with helping women in need. So So the idea is that uh, everybody can donate a handbag filled with essentials and these handbags get donated to women's refuges in New Zealand um, and obviously in the UK as well where the appeal is run over there. And the idea is to help them, support them through um, domestic violence situations because sometimes when these women come through um, through the women's refuge, they quite often don't have time to pack anything. They're leaving in extreme circumstances. So giving them this gift when they reach the women's refuge is um, a nice way to just give something for them and make them feel special and thought of. Oh, that sounds such a brilliant idea. In fact, I know my son's school used to um, does collections for this appeal. And uh, so what are the sorts of things that people are looking for? What are the sorts of things that you can donate that will make a difference with this appeal? Yeah, so we do have a poster on our Facebook page that you can go and check out to have the full list. Uh, But basically, we've uh, sectioned it off into three things. So there is the basics list, then there's the extras list and the luxuries list. So the idea is that um, you uh, have a handbag and the handbag can be secondhand as long as it's in good condition. So, um, you know, if it's lying around the house or if you want to go to an op shop and purchase one as well, if you can't afford a new one, because not all of us can. Um, And then as long as you get everything from the basics list so that's things like toothpaste toothbrush shampoo conditioner shower gel deodorant um, and sanitary products as long as you get that list um, then if you want to pop some of those extras in as well uh, that is also a great but yeah just those essentials is just to get them started when they receive these gifts oh that sounds absolutely brilliant and such a good idea have you been getting another any other support uh, for this appeal elsewhere um, support we have do you sorry I do you mean support from other businesses or yeah yeah like have any other businesses come on board to give you a hand with this 
Yeah, so I um, initially asked, so we have a Love Grace New Zealand Facebook page uh, that I've been running since 2020 and uh, had a few follow, followers on there. So I decided to reach out and see who would like to get involved so that I could make it New Zealand wide. And we actually got 66 businesses sign up um, New Zealand wide to be drop off points during this appeal. Um, so that's covering 36 locations around New Zealand. So all of these are volunteers. Um, so people who have reached out who want to help and um, are working alongside them. We've got another 38 people that are coordinating the appeal in those areas uh, because I can't unfortunately be in all places at once. No. So I've got a woman on the ground helping me out and um, they are going to be, you know, sorting through all the bags and um, attaching the Love Grace tag to then gift to the Women's Refuge. Oh, that's brilliant. So for people, if they're wanting to find what you're looking for, then uh, where to drop these things off, the best place to find that is on the Love Grace Facebook page. Yes, that's right. So it's Love Grace, the Love Grace Handbag Appeal New Zealand Facebook page. And um, on there, there are pinned posts at the top. One has that flyer uh, that tells you what you can donate. The other one has the um, interactive Google map that you can find a location closest to you. And then also another one, uh, sorry, more details below on all the other ways that they can help out as well. So it's definitely the best place to find any updates on the appeal. Oh, no, look, that is you know, an incredible cause. And so, you know, we hate the thought that women will ever be in that situation, but it is just the reality. And if you, if it means that they can get out of a dangerous situation quickly and get to safety, and then, you know, as you said, they've got those essentials when they arrive at the other end, it just makes all the difference, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, we've had a few uh, responses back from Women's Refuge who have gifted these handbags to women and it's always a loving response that they, um, you know, quite often they, you know, got tears in their eyes or they're just so overwhelmed with the fact that somebody, uh, a random stranger has gifted them something and they get uh, a present or a gift for them because, you know, quite often uh, these women are coming from situations where they don't have a lot and, um, you know, especially because they're leaving in these extreme circumstances as well I think it means a lot to them and we have had feedback of that as well Oh that's absolutely brilliant this has been Kylie Ann Kearney she is the organiser of the New Zealand Love Grace Handbag Appeal and as she said you can find that Facebook page and that will have all those details there Kylie Ann, good luck and well done how long does the appeal run for I know it's already started, it started last week when does it conclude, when can people get bags in, um, how long have they got to get bags in for yeah, so the appeal uh, officially ends on the 8th of March. And so basically, just to give you an idea as well, we run it from uh, international, sorry, Valentine's Day to International Women's Day every year, as long as we've got someone to run it. And previously, BNZ have run it successfully for the last four years. And so this year, um, it is taking a different approach as they weren't able to participate. And um, basically, we've just got... Uh, so many businesses on board and it's all independent businesses um, and the women of New Zealand who are running it this year, which is amazing. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. Hey, thanks, Kylie-Anne. And if you want any details at all, just drop us a line, 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. I'll make sure I have those links to the lovely Liz as well at inbox. Hey, thanks, Kylie-Anne. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Counter Culture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and joining me now, as always, for Media Matters is Marty Gibson. Good morning, Marty. Morning, Marie. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. 
I'm doing very well. I've uh, been looking, doing a you know, a bit of digging around in the papers and listening Retoxing. to a few. Yeah, retoxing, doing a few bits and pieces. And I have a question for you, my friend, which I think you should turn into a column. As, as a nation, do you think we've gone soft? Yeah, I think I think people have far less uh, tolerance for discomfort and long-term thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, where, where there's, where there's uh, a, a why, there's a how, and I think we've lost our why. I, I, I think often we don't have a that that kind of optimistic vision of a shared bright future that uh, civilization and ascendancy has we've rather got the trivial pleasure seeking that uh, a civilization decline tends to be characterized by mm. it's it, a long answer yeah no no it's not a, because i agree i agree with you because i just read a number of stories across the weekend where to use a word that is so overly used by people who have an ideological difference to me, privilege. Uh, And I've just looked at this affluence and how often I have said that particularly critical social justice ideologies can only flourish in an environment of affluence. And we're not as affluent now. We're um, having to, you know, the diet needs to start. We've been gorging on $100 billion and lots of people have become quite fat and happy on that. And the diet starts now. And as a bigger girl, no one likes to be told to go on a diet. But well, it doesn't work if someone tells you to go on a diet, doesn't yeah. it? Any more than it works if someone tells you to stop drinking booze. Uh, you've really got to be dissatisfied with your current state. And you've got to start, well, this is my experience anyway, you've got to start forming a really vivid, enthusiastic, optimistic vision of where you're going to get. So anytime you feel like eating one of those tasty cream buns or whatever you're, uh, you know, or an icy cold American uh, pale ale, you, you sort of have to say to yourself, well, do you want that or do you want whatever your vivid vision mm. is? Yeah, and Christopher Luxon, of course, had his State of the Nation on Sunday. And, you know, I mean, it's a tall order. I mean, he's he's inherited an absolute cop case. He's, and he's here at this speech trying to try and inspire people. Now, I read the media on the speech. I only actually just listened to it yesterday. So I read all the media and the afterthought on his State of the Nation and you would have thought that he'd stood up there and delivered a, a funeral eulogy, to be brutally honest. And, I, and then I listened to it, and whilst I'm not his biggest fan and he leaves me as excited as a limp lettuce leaf, there was lots of, we're going to fix this, we're going to fix this, we're going to fix, it, fix mm. this, and then he did it. We're going to get New Zealand back on track. Back on track. Back on track. Excellent. Thanks, Chris. Which is what he's meant to say. And he was very, I mean, you could see that they have a plan of what they do. And they're also acutely aware of what got them there. I didn't think the speech warranted the negative media, but perhaps that's what the $100 billion bought, maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, as I've said uh, before, the the biggest... uh the biggest crime that uh, Christopher Luxon uh, commits as far as female journalists are, are concerned is he doesn't give them the tingles. Mm. Maybe even gives them a bit of the ick, who knows. Whereas Jacinda Ardern uh, did what a woman uh, would do if, if they want to be successful and comes across as one of their friends who reminds them of them. Mm. Yeah. So she, she got a pretty soft ride uh, in a way that uh, Judith Collins, say, certainly didn't. 
No. Um, Speaking of the ick too, he certainly gave them the ick at the big gay out. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, just, just uh, I guess if you take the criticisms of his, his State of the Nation speech at face value, it, it, it does come back to my constant criticism of him is, is that for all that he's billed as being a great businessman, he, he's obviously never had to sell something to someone who had to give up their own money to buy it. Uh, because uh, features tell and benefits sell. The figures that he gives around long-term unemployment are, are horrific. Job seeker benefits up 57% uh, with over 70,000 more people on it, which brings it up to 190,000 people. MSD has told us that for the 2,000 young people receive a youth payment or young parent payment, they are now expected to spend an average of 24 years of their working life on a benefit. It's up almost 50% in just three years. So, yeah, there's plenty of bad stuff, but yeah. that's the criticising people for their weight rather than saying, hey, you know, and let's take it back to how uh, about unemployment. You're right on that benefit number because it's certainly one thing that he's been slammed about. And I heard with, yeah, St John was the name of the woman from the charity, and I can't, for the life of me, I can't find the name of the charity. And she sort of criticised that, by essentially benefit bashing, all you'll be hmm. doing. Well, it, sounds, it does sound like that. And it, again, like with the stuff like we're going to creep down on gangs, he hasn't sat in the tinny house and, mm. and, and watched what a miserable time it has been. You just don't, you always feel that a fight might break out. You know, the young guys are kind of wasted and now and then saying stupid things that could get them punched in the face. And, as this, and, you know, with, with long-term unemployment, your horizons shrink, your self-esteem shrinks. So he could frame that in a really compassionate, positive way, and I think people would buy it a lot more. You could say, hey, look, the health effect of unemployment is similar to smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, and uh, these people could just be leading such so much more fulfilling lives if they get back to work, and it's going to hurt initially, just like being unfit, it hurts when you first start exercising. And so the key isn't to smash someone and, and have them so sore they just think, I'm never doing that again. you just got to say, hey, put your shoes on, walk to the end of the street, mm. and then give yourself a pat on the back. So there's sort of this cycle, right? And one of the cycles being is that work is actually hard work. I, I put it here, get up, turn up, shut up. Right. I mean, you, both you and I remember what it's like when you mm. start your first jobs. I didn't do university. I, I finished high school. I did an, a student exchange. I came back. I was both you and I were at that awkward time age wise where university went from pretty much mostly a free proposition to all of a sudden you had to stump up for money. Yeah. I didn't have that. And the student loan scheme isn't what it was today. So I went straight into work. At that time, I was earning $20 more a week than what I would have been earning if I was on the dole. And for that, I was working, 50, uh, I think it was just under about 48 hours a week with aching legs and sore feet and having to talk to yeah. people all day. It would have been a hell of a lazy sitting home doing nothing, I can tell you that right well, now. Well, that's that. beneficiary maths, and you hear them say this a lot. It's like, okay, if I'm only earning 20 bucks a week and I'm working 40 hours, I'm effectively only making 50 cents an hour. And that's that's the way a lot of them think. And if they're topping it up by um, being, uh, you know, able to in their free time, they've got deal a bit of weed and whatever else. Then you know, often they're making quite a comfortable living, thanks. And uh, 
you know, it's easy enough to get some sort of diagnosis of some mental health condition where you can move from the job seeker benefit to a sickness benefit. So yeah, you you really have to say, okay, I understand why that's enjoyable, or, or on on and on the face of it, why you might like that. But picture yourself in two years' time where you've you've gotten to the habit of working how much better you'll feel about yourself. Oh, and- absolutely. And that cycle needs to start at school. And I thought the, the story that Paula Bennett told in her column, mm. because truancy, Luxon brought it up in a state of the nation, as he was saying, what was it in the UK? They have 79% of kids that go to school regularly in this country. It's like 46%. Yeah. Okay. Our truancy is just horrific. And Paula Bennett talked about, uh, governments getting out of the way and allowing communities to sort out community problems. And she talked about a grandmother in Kawarau who used to go around uh, to the kids. She had, what was it, 100-odd kids on her list. She obviously was working with the local Kawarau College, and she would go around and literally knock on these doors um, ignore the, you know, the the benders and the drugs and everything that she would have to go past, and drag these kids out of the bed, yeah. put them in their uniforms, and get them to school. And so the outcome determines the process, which we spoke about last week. You know, governments normally the process determines the outcome. That's yeah. what Paul was talking about. Um, she is, and and she would talk about the improvement that actually was gained by giving these kids a reason to get up and get out of bed every day and go to work. Now we're so and you know, you know that something is deeply wrong with the with these with the whole thought and the process to get up when we're now for a lot of these kids in a high wage environment. I mean my boys work in a commercial kit in a restaurant, right? In a restaurant kitchen as dishwashers. And I love, I'm a really strong believer of hospitality work for young kids because hospital hospital is hard freaking work. If you've done work in hospital, you know how hard work it is. Whether it's front of house, back of house, your feet hurt, you everything aches. You're dealing with customers that can be idiots half the time. It's hard work, but the life skills you learn are incredible. Now, my kids, you know, they're earning. They don't no training wages or anything. That they're earning minimum wage, but minimum wage when you're 15 and 17, they're not a lot of money. Well, also, if you're if you're earning minimum wage in such a way that people want to give you a job, because some workers are better than others, uh, you don't stay on minimum wage for long. No, and and you know that that's the vision that they need to get uh, beneficiaries to to see is hey, you can retrain. You 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 might do that beneficiary maths and think, well, I'm only earning twenty bucks a week more. But if we track it forward over ten years, you know, you, you could be earning a thousand dollars a week. I, and I think, yeah, there, there is that lack of vision given to kids. My son made friends with a, a slightly older Māori kid who uh, was around the corner, and he sort of started coming over here quite a lot. And I, I think, you know, he's from quite a hard-up family, and uh, he was very impressed with the food here. And when I – because he moved out and he's moved somewhere, hopefully I bump into him again. But one of the things he said when my son was saying goodbye to him was, thanks for all the food. So we sort of fed him, you know, quite a lot at the weekend. I, you know, felt awful about that. But I said to him at one point, how are you finding school? He said, oh, I like uh, writing stories, but um, I'm not good at maths. And I sort of rounded on him uh, and said, you know why you're not good at maths? Because you're not doing your homework. And if you get stuck, you're not asking a teacher and not stopping until you get it. And then went off on a, you know, discussion with him about, hey, if you 
stay up with that maths. If you determine, hey, I'm going to be one of the, the better ones in my class at it, then you can do, a, say, a pre-apprenticeship engineering course. You could leave school at 15 or 16 and do that if your maths is good. And then after that for a year and then three years as an apprenticeship, you could be 19 on 70000 bucks a year with a company vehicle. And you could go anywhere in the world and make 100 bucks an hour doing useful things. That's why you stay good at maths. He, he came to me a couple of times after that and and said how he'd, you know, been asking his teachers when he got stuck and he'd been doing his homework. And I think often it's as little as that painting a picture for kids and giving them some accountability and, uh, yeah, being a bit tough on them maybe. Mm. Because there is a whiny little voice in all our heads, and I might have spoken about it before, when you start exercising here, oh, why do I need to do this? Oh, I'm just fine the way I am. Oh, why should I Why should I put myself through this pain and risk of injury for other people's beauty standards? Me, me, me. And same with when you're working. Oh, it could be, you know, on the dole and only getting $20 less a week. And that whiny little voice has got political representation in the form of socialism. Hmm. And it's yeah. our mortal enemy. Well, it takes away self-agency, doesn't you it? You have to see it as an enemy to mm. make progress. As I said, I'm not a huge fan of Luxon, but I do I do actually have some sympathy for him because he is trying, he is trying to do his very best. He's been in the job, what, 82 days or something. Uh, he's got his, got his little plan that he's ticking off. So far, there haven't been any massive spats or arguments between the three coalition leaders, which is all we can ask with the coalition. And yet the media are just, you know, they're not, they're playing dirty pool, that they, they are uh, out there with a lot of sort of what I call catastrophizing stories. Now, not to say that there aren't issues in the stories that they're publishing, but they're all stories that pre-existed the current coalition, but they're not rolling these, yes, and they're rolling these stories out now. And part of me wonders, and examples of that is the one, uh, the one, one, one system failing yeah. These all appeared over the weekend. Uh, police infrastructure uh, needs replacing black mould in police stations and that the vast number of police stations are now no longer requiring, now need to be replaced. Early childhood failures, and, and this this is a problem. The ECE system is a problem that sits at the government's feet for some reason. I don't know why. The ambulance service creating having issues in regards to ambulances not being on the road because they claim because of costing issues but when one actually scratches a little bit uh deeper on that one and i'd like to go into that further later on but those are all stories none of these are new none of these are new problems yeah none well and what luxon's ultimately up against is that uh the merry band of marxist student politicians had that credit card and they spanked a hundred billion dollars on it and that buys a lot of love and it mm. buys a lot of things that Shane Tapoe and Vernon Small and all those other dandruff on the ill-fitting jacket types um, can blather on about. But the fact is we've been as a nation living, not only living beyond our means, but spending money on stuff that was stupid and didn't really leave us with anything in form of an asset, mainly just seemed to create more liabilities. So... Yeah, he, he's he's going to have to get a lot better at spelling out why we're in the mess we're in, that it's going to be uncomfortable in the short term to fix it, but ultimately it will be better for our children, and he's going to have to 
make variants on that messages to give to gang members, to give to beneficiaries and say, hey, you know, there's going to be pain initially, but stick with it. All right, we'll give you support and, uh, you know, it'll be better for your kids. Let's focus on that. Mm. And, he's, and he's not really that kind of features tell benefit sell kind of dude. No. And, you know, when that charity boss said that, you know, do you think that there's been an outbreak of laziness with people on benefits? Well, actually, I think there's been an out- outbreak of laziness right across the board. And uh, actually, I'm going to pull out the one on the early childhood. While you're doing that, I mean, you know, we've had that other issue where everyone's house prices have been going up. And so there's all these people in Auckland have had the banks call them and say, hey, I've got a line of credit here you could use because your, your house has uh, doubled in value. And so I think, well, I'll you know, do the old boat, Beamer, Batch. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's right across the board. Uh, iwi organisations have been awash with soft government cash. It's the, the whiny little voice of, uh, of self-doubt is, is going to be shrill. Yeah, it is. Well, it is. And uh, so you and I, as we've mentioned many times, Marty and I, our, in fact, our birthdays are only days apart. So we're pretty much exactly the same age. And, only our mothers can tell us apart. <laughs> and it's, I mean, I, I bought my first house in the, in the late 90s where interest rates were sort of at the highs that we're seeing today, right? And, you know, through the 90s, I heard someone, um, again, and saying, oh, we haven't seen this sort of level of um, financial. They're trying to take us back to how things were in the 90s, and that won't work. And it was in one of these articles that I'll dig out in a minute. What I find really intriguing is the fact that this next generation of parents and kids and new homeowners, they they don't, it's almost like they've lost touch of what it actually takes to make things happen. And when I bought, the, my first house, I mean, I saved, you know, you save for a deposit, you get in, you buy your first house. I mean, I've always worked two jobs because that's mm. what you needed to do. We bought, I bought it, we had borders in the house to help. And you had a vision board. of where it was taking you, right? Totally. And that was strong enough. So when that little voice of whininess said to you, oh, Marie, it'd be so much nicer to be sitting on your butt in front of TV. You went, no, I want to own a house. Yeah. Freehold in 10 years or whatever your goal was. Yeah, and so and that's what allows you to make those choices. And so, what you have here is um, so the whole early childhood uh, sphere is now um, issue has now come into vast relief because there are a lot more parents, mums, who feel that they need to go back into work earlier uh, in order to help pay these mortgages because their interest rates are going up. And you know what? I do actually find that really sad because I think. If mums can stay at home raising their own children and you're not giving mm. them to the state to raise them, I think that's initially the ultimate, right? Well, where but, the state will pay them you know, or, or pay the cost of looking after their children but won't pay the mums for the opportunity cost of of not going out to work because yeah. equity. Yeah. So here's this mum who is a nurse, so she's qualified in a – a, re, a pretty re, good paying paying job. She feels that she needs to go back to work because of the rise in interest rates in the home that they have. She has a daughter, so she worked part time for six months after the birth of her daughter. Uh, both her and her partner are, are em, employed as contractors, and there are positives and negatives. I've I'm, I've been employed as a contractor for more than two decades, so I know how this works. Now, the, the positive with being a contractor is you're self-employed and you've got tax benefits in that respect and flexibility and all of those good things. The downside of being a contractor is if you don't work, you don't get paid. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So so there's in terms of stability, employment protections, you don't have that like you do as an employee. So, you know, she sort of has that little thing holding over her head. In a nutshell, she decides to go back to work. She starts looking around at early childhood centres, goes into one that's obviously close to where she lives or where she wants to have, doesn't like it because there were kids there with snotty noses and she can't afford to get sick because if her child picks up at something at daycare, newsflash, darling, every child picks up something at daycare. It doesn't matter if it's the flashiest daycare or the nicest daycare or the best funded daycare or the worst daycare. They get sick after they've been at daycare. Mm. It's how daycare works, right? It's it, it's a fact of life. It doesn't matter how clean that freaking daycare is. That kid's going to come home with coronaviruses. It's going to come home with rotaviruses. It's going to come home with every other virus because that's how they build an immune system, by hanging out with snotty-nosed kids. But anyway, let's try to rest. She used to then, so she then decided instead of enrolling her child into that she would go and see her recently retired uh, family member, uh, her mum, I think it was, yep, and she would drop it to um, her daughter to her mum so she could go to work. Great solution. She's lucky she has family support. However, the uh, 40-kilometre round trip to, to deviation to go and drop said child to mum was actually just a bit much, so she wanted to look at something close to home. So her solution is she found she moved to a part-time job that uh, at a polytech as a tutor, so less money, but it had in-house childcare, which she was happy with, and it, she didn't have to drive around. So she took a drop in pay, but it gave her more flexibility, and that was the solution, but it's the government's problem. And I was just like, what? What, mm. what am I missing, Marty? What am I missing? Sorry, I should be dense, but in terms of what, Busker? Well, she's just so she's so the article is claiming that this all of these decisions somehow is the go is is this is the problem that we have with early childcare. I don't think this is an early childcare problem. I think that this is a a parental decision problem. Yeah, well, there, yeah, there are no solutions, only uh, compromises, as Thomas Sowell likes to say. But I, I think one of the ways they sold, and I say this as someone who's done a lot of looking after. Uh, my wife and my three kids, uh, while she single-mindedly pursued her career, uh, one of the ways they sold feminism to women was grossly understating how much time is required to raise children. They need they they need a lot of time. You can't necessarily outsource it and get the same result. Well, no, and I fully get that because I mean, being on the con, you know, the reverse side of that that's part of the reason why i've been a contractor for so long because mm. i needed that flexibility to be able to juggle both working and growing a fledgling business uh, with my husband and caring for a child which was neurodivergent but we didn't know he was neurodivergent at the time so i was in a way bl- ignorance was bliss but you have to do whatever you have to do to make it work and i just feel that the resilience now that this that that some parents have in order to do that there is definitely a cultural shift you see that resilience in parents that come from communities environments and countries where the line between perceived poverty and actual poverty is a hell of a lot thinner than what it Mm. is in this country well and and i mean women often uh often bemoan this they've um been told that they can have it all. 
and then they realise they can't. And so they're, they're left, as you say, with a series of unsatisfactory choices and a feeling of guilt that gnaws away at them and uh, creates marital problems sometimes. And then one in one roof, there was uh, in the Weekend Herald, mortgage stress means taking two jobs. Mm. Shocker. Dear, oh dear. People are having to take two jobs in order to pay a mortgage. Mm. Again. I've got about four. Yeah. <laughs> Again, you know, I I never ever see or hear of, say, a recently arrived family complaining of those sorts of things. Uh, that's called the norm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, there's been some cheap money, easy credit. And, yeah, the, the country's been awash with uh, Robbo's borrowed billions. And um, and, and that, that was the big juxtaposition for me in that Weekend Herald, right? And this is the only reason I pulled these out, is because in the same edition, just mere pages away from each other, was mortgage stress means taking two jobs, was one story. Then a couple of pages later was Kiwi workers seek flexibility and mental well-being research shows. And it's then, you know, talking about what workers actually would really love. Oh, darling, there's many yeah. things that I would really love too. Yeah, tell us what the whiny little voice in your head is is saying because you're worth it. Yeah, exactly. So it's, um, yeah, I have to admit, so I'm going to stop complaining now because it, I'm getting a bit rantier. Well, you're starting to reveal that generation gap between us and uh, and Gen Y and more particularly Gen Z, where we've had our uh, grandparents who survived the Depression and World War II kicking us up the bum. Yeah. And so, yes. you know, from an early age, that was uh, ingrained in us. Yes. Whereas my brother is 10 years younger than me didn't have that and has quite different attitudes. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah um, no, actually, I, I would agree with that. And can actually just slightly staying on the same theme of um, the woe is me, uh, the, the media, including Bruce Cottrell, oh. um, you know, they're all, they're all feeling a little bit sorry for themselves at the moment because they're in a pinch. They are in a Hunch. Wasn't, now, wasn't we, that an incredible bit of interviewing her keyboard and really not addressing what the actual issues are? Is that Tracy? Yeah, or Tracy yeah. Watkins. Uh, the Public Interest Journalism Fund was the perfect ammunition for those enemies, uh, and we did a lousy job of fighting back, saying, oh, we just get little things wrong, and, and then basically saying... You know, the, the problem is basically people are used to hearing their own views on social media and they're not used to hearing the kind of ban balanced journal journalism we do. It's like, no, go back to that uh, wonderful bit of research that David Farrar did, that study that found that a massive 81% of New Zealand journalists classified their political views as left of centre and only 15% as right of centre. There's your problem right there, Tracy. That's your problem. And, and I still want to hear those left-wing views. But I don't want to hear the airy kind of huffing and puffing that characterised that uh, interview about Guy Williams that we critiqued. And also the latest one was the lesbian um, uh, saxophone comedy uh, duo Karen, who's Patty Gower's offsider. Bit of government-sponsored comedy. It's just never funny. And she remarked, with all of the crap that's going on in the world these days, all of the shit, this ridiculous government, all the inequality in our country, we just want 45 minutes where people can come and not have to think of anything other than two idiot lesbians on a stage. But, yeah, just that, pff, this ridiculous government, 
It's like, what's ridiculous about it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's to me, that's just a classic case of, um, you know, the disconnection between- The little bubble. The bubble, yeah, a- absolutely. Well, uh, so you had poor media, Tracy Watkins. I think I mentioned the New Zealand Herald last week. RNZ also chimed in last week. Um, and then Bruce Cottrell, he chimed in. I thought his was probably the most rational- of all of these, but ultimately media is being squeezed, legacy media. They are, advertisers are leaving in droves because they are being squeezed in their businesses, right? So they're having to account for every single dollar. But more than that, more than that, again, the whole thing that they're telling you that's happening that they're not actually telling you is that that spigot from the government has turned off, that sugar spigot that's kept that hive going and fed and happy for the last sort of, what, three to oh, six, yeah, six years really, has now been turned off. And it's not just the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Yep. There's all of that advertising at full, full rate. Full rate advertising. You know, that's now been turned off. And these organisations are scrambling because all of a sudden their incomes have been slashed, their listener and viewerships are at an all-time low. People are turning to alternatives because their trust in the people that they've normally gone to is now at an all-time low, 42%. So alternatives have sprung up like mushrooms. There's a whole heap of us out there. There is something that suits everybody. Now, I'm not saying that we're rolling in it in this station either. We're far from it. I mean, you know, it is a month-to-month thing. And thank goodness for our foundation other members club. jobs that pay for our media. Uh, yeah, our other jobs that pay for our media. Habits. And also they listen, all the listeners out there that chip in in the foundation members club and give us donations every week. Without that, we, you mm. know, we would we would be up, you know. I always love to uh, daydream though about what reality check radio could be if it just had the funding increase that national radio is going to get, oh. even as it plummets from number one to number nine in the viewer ratings. You know, I mean, you could really make some interesting programming. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about Bruce Cottrell's column was it echoed some of the stuff we'd said last week on Media Matters. And I said, you know, that that journalists were in in the rush to get a scoop or to sensationalise a story or make a group of people, make these straw man arguments where, you know, people are up against bigotry, uh, have utterly failed to build consensus. And that was a point he made in his article, that that, uh, they hadn't really been seeking balance the way they should and yes. uh, had been dividing uh, rather than building consensus that, that helped us grow as a nation. Yeah, uh, I love what he says here. The lack of balanced common sense reporting, in my view, has over the last 10 years resulted in many people feeling aggrieved that their viewpoint hasn't been covered. Correct. Yep. The other thing, too, is he talked about journalism because, of course, my youngest wants to be a journalist. I have not you know, seen him say, but that's what he wants to do. Well, he can just do it. Yeah, I know. That's what I've told kids who say, oh, I want to go and study music. It's like, well, just play it. Yeah, yeah. And I, that's, I want to study art. So just, this is what I wanted to read to you because I think that you will appreciate this. Firstly, we need to grow journalists. From the early 2000s, as, new, as the newspaper industry weakened, one of its most important functions is the training ground for journalists. It, start, it started to decline. A communications degree does not a journalist make. Many writers who provided our news and current affairs through the second half of the 20th century learned their trade in newspaper industry under grumpy old editors who were steeped in the good old-fashioned journalism. And 
That's, that's exactly that's exactly how you learn. It's exactly how I learned. In fact, I was one of the last John Jones, Ian Gillies, Dave Conway. John Jones. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and that's exactly how I learned as well. I mean, I'm not a, a journalist. I mean, I, I've only ever been an announcer. So quite a different kettle of fish, I will concede. But I was part of that last group of radio um announcers that were trained on the job. Mm. In fact, like the person who, that, who still had a hip flask of whiskey in their top drawer sometimes. Oh, yeah, and the rest. Uh, and and when I started, I started on drive initially, three till six. And in fact, the person that replaced me, I moved from drive to another role in the the business, and then moved to weekend breakfasts. And the the person that replaced me that I trained, Amanda Gillies. Right. I just missed working with Amanda. She left mm. uh, just before I joined the Gisborne Hill. Well, I, I knew her anyway. Yeah, but. freshly minted from a communications yeah. degree in Christchurch. So, you know, and that, that that's when that shift happened. Um, secondly, we need investigation, not reporting. Yeah. No, yeah, exactly, Bruce. It's but often said... But never goes amiss either. <laughs> it's often said that one of the media's most important roles is to hold those in power to account. And you have said this often. You have said this often. We need investigation, not reporting. And that's the thing. I mean, a lot of journalists now, whether it be through lack of numbers or time pressures from editors, but at the end of the day, all they're doing is regurgitating press releases. Yeah. So they've, they're just rubber stamping stuff through. There's no why anymore. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you can, and you, if, if you are used to seeing it, you can see the press releases. A mile off, and you can even see the ones where a journalist's maybe made a call to someone else, and um, then added that and put a different intro on it and stuck their byline on it. Mm. And you know, and you, part of the reason you know that that regurg is going is like again, how many times have I? Because I mean, I will go through and scan a story right, and I'll see something either in print when we do my when I do the in hard copy, or I'll see it in soft copy and I'll think, ah, okay, this is what stuff said about it, what's New Zealand Herald said about it, what's RNZ said about it, what's whatever said about it, and every single piece is identical, almost down to the letter, or the changes are so imperceptible. Mm. Well, it's because a lot of journalists left journalism and got paid twice as much working in PR for government departments. Mm. Uh, that's that's where they've gone, and maybe they'll come back um, with, with the belt tightening. Who, who knows? But yeah, the the, the point about uh, Google and uh, Facebook basically stealing content is well made. Absolutely, and I think this is what sparked it because they're trying to get that sort of bill through. And and I and I again, I agree with you. It is a point well made. I mean, I think they should be paying for that content, but why would they with the quality of some of it? But well, you know, I mean, I. I really resent the extent to which they manipulate the message as well. And then you've got, what is it, News Safe or whatever uh, that uh, uh, company is that's basically editing news feeds now, sort of linked in, I think, to where Dear Leader went to control freedom of speech. The nooses are tightening, and it is ultimately going to be people who are willing to, uh, you know, wash uh, dishes uh, to fund their media habit or you know, whatever, you know, sell uh, knitting supplies or make olive oil or uh, shampoo carpets are mm. going to be your journalists. Yeah, and 
and again, that's it's where that trust comes in, and it's it's also breaking things back in terms of uh, what you can trust. I mean, I do worry about uh, the future of, like, for example, with things with AI and and the quality of some of the deep fakes and all the rest of it that you've seen. I mean, I've seen some stuff pop up on. Uh, news sites internationally and it is clearly not true but then you get to a point very quickly with AI I think that's going to be one of the next challenges is when it's like the boy that cried wolf you have a whole bunch of you know fake news fake news fake news fake news and when the actual real news happens you can it's indiscernible from the stuff that's that's not real and and people just completely miss it and I think we had that during COVID as well and so you know those are those are things that are vastly more concerning yeah you could return to Paula Bennett's point that communities know how to sort out their own problems and I think that's probably the answer that you know we've got so many people who are very concerned about issues you know whether it's uh, in the Middle East or in Ukraine and they've got a very definite uh, position on it and they maybe change their fa- Facebook profile or something like that while there are those kids around the corner who are hungry and aren't doing well in education and you know as I've said before you know I could pretty quickly solve child poverty habitat loss crime uh, poor education outcomes in my cul-de-sac. And I think that's where we've got to yeah. move towards. And that will give us the mission that will be reminiscent of a of a civilization that's um, in ascendancy. I mean, we've just had dear Anne Tolley, who's the unelected head of uh, Tauranga at the moment, increase um, some charities' rents uh, and costs by uh, almost 300%. Uh, as at this April, even though there's an election coming this year. So, you know, we're, we're in an administration in Tauranga. But right. um, I keep forgetting that. Yeah, yeah, really uh, yeah, need to have different, um, perceptibly different regions, I think, and they need to be competing for immigrants because mm. they need to be deciding, well, what do we need? And it should be easy enough for a community to say, hey, these educational outcomes aren't sustainable. This, um, you know, we'll, we'll take your pick. Mm. Mm. And there is that decentralisation that uh, this current coalition are looking at doing, particularly with Tipu Kinga, which I'll well, so say. Yeah, so they say, indeed. I mean, another direction I wanted to head in, and I mentioned it earlier around St John's, which I had popped under my title of immediate catastrophizing, but I also had a second one, which is of uh, normalisation stories for things that are happening out in society at the moment that uh, they're not saying the reason for what it is is they're not saying for what it is. So, for example, that St John's story, and then there was also a column from James... I can never pronounce his name. It's an um, is it Nokisi? Nokis? Um, he had a, a piece about the can getting a cancer diagnosis and you know how you handle what is just this can be a devastating piece of news. And of course, you know, there seems to be lots of people getting that news at the moment. Mm. And it's that sort of the whole reporting and normalizing of the effects of what no one wants to talk about, excess deaths and chronic illness, and admitting that without admitting that there's been excess deaths and chronic illness. And St. John's Yeah, and St. John's is the one that I found really interesting because there there were several stories and and I read there was RNZ had one, uh, I think it was the Herald or the Post, I've got it in the pile of paper there. And ultimate and it was again on News Talk ZB yesterday I heard it. 
They bought it up with Christopher Luxon. And St. John's is, again, in a funding crisis. So they've seen donations drop. They picked up some extra funding from the government. And they claim that part of the issue is in terms of costings. And they're having to take ambulances off the road because they can't afford to keep them on the road. But when I sort of dug a little deeper, part of the reason they're having a costing crisis is because they're also having a chronic illness crisis and they've also got a recruitment crisis. So there is a certain number that they lost during the thing that should not be named and they haven't necessarily had those paid people come back on board. They've got staff, paid staff and volunteers who are completely stretched, but they also have a crisis where you've got staff who have to go off sick because they're either um, have, are chronically sick or they have sickness issues. And of course, you then have to cover that. So then that takes other staff from other places of the roster. You've got to pay them. So you're paying twice for a single position because one is off sick and you're having to, to pay the other one to come on, on board. Which So it's this sort of cycle. And there's a lot more demand for health services. And there's a lot more demand for health services. So, and when someone was questioned about that, you know, the response I heard was, is I just find it ridiculous that, that this isn't fully funded by the government anyway, and it should be. I mean, I happen to agree with that. And, and you know, I never feel good about this, but sometimes, you know, when someone's collecting for, you know, collecting for child cancer, it's like, you know, I would have thought that child cancer could have been addressed by some of that extra $100 billion. Mm. I would have thought, you know, hope that St. John could have been funded f for that. You know, some, something something useful, but it's... And then there was a swathe I heard on Talkback, because I dare I say, listening to Talkback, who said that they cancelled, because St John have like a membership that you can pay, and if you then have a call-out, your call-out is for free. So a lot of people do do, if you're at a certain age, and uh, my parents fall into this, because my parents have the little, um, the alarm, so yeah. they are on the subscription service, and they have uh, the. We can't the, use it like Uber Eats or something. <laughs> they don't, but I have to say, you know, because the, the parentals, you know, don't live in town. They live ten k's out of town. They're of an age where stuff happens. You know, they one fall away from really bad things. Yeah. So they both. Um, my mum did it first, and she actually got a partner one for my dad, which he moaned and groaned about. But actually, good old Nana. For doing that because she's had to use it for him you know he's he's had a dicky ticker since the you know and it's they've had they've had to use it and that means right. that when they're caught short and she's on a walker and she can't rush to a car and try and heave him in there and if he's having a moment she's got that peace of mind that she can press that you know press that alarm and they know straight away they can get somebody out there they, St. John's have been incredible, and unfortunately, as time has gone on, they've been a more frequent flyer out to, to their place than I would care to admit. And that's so valuable. But then you've got people that are pulling their support, and I heard four callers, one after another after another, oh, we did it when they changed their name to Hatuhone St. John's. You know, we just we didn't like they that for them that was not the purpose, and they that that was their reaction was it's to a cancel. significant change to the brand, isn't it? It is, and, and, and that's what no one likes to admit. Is New Zealand's got a brand? The word New Zealand carries all sorts of emotion, and as John Key found out, so does the flag. Yeah, it yeah. might it, it might symbolically mean one thing or the other, but it's what people went to war representing, and. Um, St. John's, uh, yeah, is, is is the brand. Mm. 
It is. So whilst that, so whilst that kept quite busy at one end, um, with with the sort of the illness and unwellness, the other thing that I found, which is at the opposite end of the spectrum, has been uh, the whole birth rate uh, stories have started cropping up again, and yep. in a way, the ECE uh, story sort of tied into that because kindergartens are seeing a, a drop in kids going and as people go back to work, they're sort of putting pressure in another part of the sector. So there's mm. sort of a, 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 an unbalancing that's going on there. That New Zealand drop in New Zealand's live birth rate. I'll have to check wow. in on that again. I think it's probably come back up a bit. But uh, 1.56 mm. is where we're at. And uh, we had uh, the, the number in between of live births versus uh, those that passed on was the smallest that it had been since the Second World War. And you imagine the birth rate during the Second World War was considerably dampened by uh, the absence of men until the American um, soldiers got here. But, um, yeah, I mean, hence the baby boomers. But um, it'll be interesting. Uh, I don't think we're going to have a boom this time. No. And no. Oh, did you read that um, what it's really like to be single in New Zealand story in the uh, Herald on Sunday? I did. You I could did. hear the plummeting birth rate in that. All these ladies getting older and reminiscing about uh, alpha chads who uh, showed them a good time and how repug repugnant men probably about their level of attractiveness are. It's interesting. So you, there were a couple of things that were really, really interesting about that, and it's it sparked a couple of things. One was, uh, I don't know whether you heard I had any heart on last week, and we were talking about dating and we had some really really great feedback on uh any segment that was a great uh, she was so pragmatic wasn't she oh, yeah. she's awesome she's yeah. also pragmatic yeah she's she's just and her approach to it i thought was was brilliant because she's she, the final four yeah <laughs> but also I, lo I love that whole bit when she said look if you want to go off and have your duty sex go off and have your duty sex yeah. you know she she's just she was brilliant and we got great feedback from that. So thank you to everybody that um, did give, give us feedback. And one of the bits of, actually a couple of bits of feedback from that were around women, mature women who were on their own. And it's finding those, as Gad said, calls that the birds of a feather flock together. People, there are certain key interests that are real deal breakers. And Annie talked about that, that you need to have to form those relationships. And one of the things that we're seeing, and I'm seeing it within the teenagers, is that you have um, the men that are seeing things through one lens, real Mars Venus stuff, the women that are seeing, and the girls are seeing stuff through another lens, and they're actually struggling to come together uh, in that common ground. So for some of the listeners that commented with us, obviously the whole COVID um, disparity is, is, was, for some people that commented, was a deal breaker. I mean, there were marriages that broke up during mm. that period of time because they fell on different sides of the debate. Man, if you are someone and you kept your marriage going through that, good on you. Well, the ones that kept going often got stronger, didn't they? Because mm. you realise, man, you know, I guess she's or he's more sensible than maybe I'd thought and you had seen some people go nuts and yeah but yeah. with the with the kids you know like I'm just uh 
I mean, you've mentioned it before with some of these men that are particularly steeped in the ideology of critical social justice. Why are they actually there? Is it because there is some other uh, deficiency going on in terms of their neurodevelopment? Or it's is it the cuttlefish they... mating technique where yes. the, the weak little male cuttlefish tuck their uh, whatever they are that distinguish them from female cuttlefish, tuck mm. them in, pretend to be a girl, and then come under the big uh, alpha male cuttlefish and sneakily you know, mate with all the female cuttlefish by saying, oh, yes, I'm an ally. Have another glass of Chardonnay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay, I wasn't quite going to frame it in those terms, but there you go. The dating thing, I mean, yeah, it's it's really, you really feel for for young people because there are still young people who want to get married and you almost... You almost do need to have a separate society, and and I often say, you know, I, I I've begun to transition my children early. You know, I think if they're old enough to express a uh, an interest in getting married and uh, having kids, then you you know you start to transition them, start to talk about financial responsibility, the uh, pitfalls of drugs and alcohol, the politics around being valued for the way you look rather than the content of your character, how to spot good character in others. So, you know, you can sort of work them up and, you know, the futility of, of meaningless um, sex, although, I'm, you know, a fine one to talk about that. Mm. No, it, yeah, I did. I certainly did see that. And it's just, yeah, changing those sorts of mindsets and uh, having them value. I've been thinking about arranged marriages. You know, I thought, you know, you could, you could do some sort of uh, – have some sort of system where you got together with like-minded families and, um, you know, had a, had a system where, you know, the family could maybe have a picnic and kids that got on well, you say, okay, well, we'll check back in when you're mm. 15 and then, you know, again, as you so, get older. And- but then that's also too, that's a place that um, faith-based communities always used to hold. You know, yeah. often, you know, where did you meet a potential future partner? You would either often meet them at school or at work or within a church environment, which yeah. then goes back to, you know, as Gad Sad talks about in his book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, is that of the two maxims of what bring people together, and one, the, the thing that he believes is most important to happiness is having a fulfilling life partner is the birds of a feather flock together, which he believes is the most successful or the opposites attract maxim, which can be really passionate and explosive, but for long-term happiness and success isn't as successful as birds of a feather flock together. And I have to say within a freedom environment, a freedom community, I've sort of joked amongst, fortunately for me, I've got neighbours and the, the street of radicals, which I've talked about before. Now, all these parents in, that have been like-minded, all our kids have gone to primary school together. And I've kind of joked that, you know, if the craziness ensued, uh, we've got a neighbour whose two girls are the same age as our two boys. And I was like, well, if all, all turns to absolute yeah. um, grunch, you know, we can, uh, we, at least we know we've got these four kids that can um, potentially. Uh, yeah, well, I've got great friends in Australia and uh, I've, uh, often, you know, said we'll have to get our kids together and that way, you know, if we have a wedding, it's going to be more fun. So they've got good genes. Their grandmother was Miss New South Wales, who sadly um, passed uh, last year. But, uh, yeah, I think I think it would be a, a better system than uh, just the hookup culture. And I think we're going to see a splitting off of a parallel culture in New Zealand mm. because it is going down. But that's also part of your community concept, isn't it? Mm. 
as part of that wider community concept because by strengthening those communities, whether it be, as you said, in your street or your neighbourhood or whatever that community is, that's one of the benefits, that's one of the butterfly effects that comes from that community. And I think that's something where Māori and Pākehā cross purposes because, you know, I think that concept of tino rangatiratanga, you know, they don't need a separate house in parliament to do that any more than we need a separate house in parliament to form a community of, of common values. I think as a matter of urgency, we should have uh, communities that are run along principles from the Green Party, and I think it should be Wellington Central. I think they should be paying a wealth tax and and uh, doing whatever other harebrained things they need to um, realise that even if they do it their way, there's still going to be a lot of broken eggs and no omelette. They should be a, a Māori community and, you know, the Uruweras. You know, it doesn't need to be, you don't need to have Tamiiti and uh, a bunch of skinny white Marxists forming New Zealand's Hamas to um, to get that, you know, do it. And, you know, if there's some support and let's, Let's study it. It doesn't have to be oppositional. We should have, you know, that Swiss canton thing where, you know, different people might suit different areas. The only problem is that once they start competing, some will do well, some won't. And that's also one of the points that Paula Bennett made about the grandmother going to get these truants out of bed to get mm. them school right. She said if that was put into a formalised context, the government would get in the way. Yeah. And I think that this is where, whether it be local government, Governance or central governance, the hest you've got to get out of the way of these people, and also to those who are in those communities making that happen. Um, you also just have to look at not rely on governance to be there for you because you, because they do get in the way. They stop you from well, doing all that. I think where government could be useful is standard as uh, centralising study, centralising basic management um, systems. So people who are really good at you know, using that example, getting kids to go to school aren't having to spend all this time writing funding applications or, you know, doing HR for people that they're hiring when they're not very good at hiring to check whether they're cheating. You know, those sort of things would be useful. But uh, in terms of people doing the work, you know, if, if, if the people doing the work could be free to uh, form their own goals and... Uh, you know, try different things in different places, see what works. That That's the ideal situation rather than all of these places being controlled on puppet strings from Wellington. Mm. Mm. Indeed. Let us know what you think, everybody. 2057 is the text number. Inbox at realitycheck.radio. Um, now, I do have some feedback. Hold on a moment. Letters. From Ian, we've got just a quick note listening to Marty this morning on a podcast replay and he mentioned having to retox on main lamestream media after a nice break. I think I'm in good company when I say thank you to the whole RCR team who are doing the retoxing so I don't have to. I'm relying on all you guys to keep me up to New Zealand political speed so I don't have to stomach the TVNZ, TV3, RNZ, BS to stay in the loop. I know it sounds selfish but a great big thank you to to you all. You're most welcome, Ian. Makes it makes it worthwhile that people appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, we've had lots of good stuff. 
Uh, lots of welcome backs and good to have everybody there. And I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do the da, um the dating stuff with Annie when I get her back on course. Well, a proper welcome back to you, Marie. We've missed you and your accomplice, Marty. Of course, thanks, Pierre. <laughs> So it's good to hear from everybody. 2057 is the text number. Inbox at realitycheck.radio. Do um, let us know. And we do have had, and I haven't read it out, but we have actually had a suggestion for a guest, which um, is somebody that I am certainly going to think about doing. But because of something that I'm involved with at the moment, from a legal perspective, we can't quite talk very to that person. Talking. I'm being very cryptic. But yes, so to, and so that person, I think, who knows... They'll know if they're listening, they'll know what I'm talking about. Yes, I have got it. And yes, um, it is certainly something that we will potentially look into. So we do look at everything, don't you? Nods as good as a wink to a blind horse. I know, I know. Well, there's still a lot to actually have a look at. I'm feeling a little bit more settled than what I was last week. I know when we spoke last week, I was a little bit sort of um, fidgety and fractious. I am feeling a little bit settled and I have been doing with the retox, I've been doing a little bit of that zoom out. And for me, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Barney, but for me, I'm doing that little bit of a zoom out. I'm looking at things and going, right, okay, well, let's see where the coalition government goes with what it is they're aiming and um, promising as it, you know, they've not been there three months yet. So, Mm. you know, there's still time. You just um, got to think of the media as that whiny voice that moans when you go jogging. That's what they are, and you just got to jog through it. Yeah, and you I do. Think, I think National are doing that pretty well, and I think um, you know, Act and New Zealand First are, are fulfilling that that uh, role, running interference that uh, Cam had said would be an advantage of it. Um, and I, I hope that they don't lose their nerve. I think you know, Luxon's got that instinctive corporate. Uh, uh, thing with bad press that has turned turns his bowels to water, but you know, he's just going to have to harden up. Yeah, indeed. And you know, just rolling your sleeves up. You know, I, I mean, I just, I just sort of look Rolls at all of this. Board. Yeah, I just look at all of this and go, okay, no, that's fine. I'm going to continue doing the hard work here, and then I'm also going to continue doing the hard work in the day job, and as you do at home, and just getting those kids out there because that, at the end of the day, that's where the mahi is—is is actually doing stuff yourself. And mm. sitting back and, and abrogating stuff to these other people, particularly government, is never going to get you anywhere. So I'm certainly going to keep focused on that for sure. Um, we're, and of course, you and I will do all of this again next week. I look forward to it. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. Oh, gosh, what a morning. It is Marie and I am going to catch up now to see what is going to up my brave because I need to do that, I think, every single day. It's Natalie Cutler-Welsh. How are you, Nat? I'm so good. I've been uh, out at my daughter's triathlon the other day and, um, you know, just doing a bit of this and a bit of that. It's feeling good. It is feeling good. You know, we were saying the other day, 2024, the nice thing about a new year is that it's an excuse-free time. You can just switch it up however you want. Exactly. Well, I'm, uh, I feel like I'm upping my brave in, in little ways as well. So I think we can all do with a bit of that. Yeah, no, thanks. It's fantastic. So what have you got coming up? So yeah, later um, this afternoon, I'm going to be having three amazing guests come on the show. I'm going to start off with Lorraine Hamilton. She is a coach for coaches, in fact, and she's talking about going beyond the coaching process, uh, going beyond mindset as well, talking about coaching versus mentoring, how to create a thriving environment and being trauma-informed, and this is the most important, how to find a reputable coach that is an ideal match for you 
for what you're going through at the moment. So I think that'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, I'm talking to Erica Whittam, who is the General Secretary of the Number 8 Workers Union. She's a volunteer, by the way. And we're talking about how the new unions are changing the landscape, talking about mandated workers, compensations, personal grievances, and such. Oh, they see these are more of these parallel parallel structures beginning to be created. Yeah, that's certainly quite a hot story because that's been creating some waves out there this past week. So I can't wait to hear that. Yeah, that's so good. And then, um, well, it just gives people hope because a lot of the compensation that's been happening, we don't hear about it. So it's good to give people hope that, you know, there is some, there are some ramifications happening. Then my final guest is Ginny Jones. She's a medical intuitive and energy healer. And we're talking about raising your frequency in 2024. And some of the things are a little obvious, like laughter and joy and unconditional love, but also clearing out the old traumas and beliefs. So basically things that are rising up and releasing them, the emotions and all the negative things so that you can basically, you know, live in a higher frequency, which Mm -hmm. I'm all about that too. I know that all sounds very Taylor Swift, shake it off. (laughs) doesn't it oh look really is sounds fantastic can't wait this is a nice thing now i get to finish up make a cup of tea sit down and listen to you up your brain (laughs) hey i really appreciate it nat uh thanks very much and i'd better let you go so you can get started yeah let's get into it okay thanks nat while natalie gets settled in the up your brave hot set it's time for some more music this is rise up from andrew day and i will join you here next week on counterculture with reality check radio have a great week You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR, RCR. Reality Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.